Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Blaine Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's only CASA-approved electronic flight bag for iPad. Get a free 30-day trial today at ozrunways.com. And by Jet Ride Australia. Experience the ultimate thrill-ride in our Soviet-era L-39 jet. The locations in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. You can be top gun for the day. Find out more at jetride.com.au slash pcdu. And by 50 Tales of Flight, the latest ebook by Owens Up, covering everything from biplanes to Boeings. Available on Kindle and iTunes and at owensup.com. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 111. No, that's not F111, just 111 of Australia's favourite aviation show. I'm Steve Vischer, and joining me as always on this very windy Melbourne night, Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? Are you freezing to death? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm feeling a little bit cold, but mostly because I'm getting used to Melbourne again after a week in Bali. But uh, before we get on to that, mate, I just want to say something of interest. Like, yes, this is the 111 episode, and like the F111, it's had some delays in getting out, so I think it's rather Yes, it has been. Uh, it has been delayed. In fact, we could say, Grant, that we're the F thirty five of podcasts. At least this episode. Oh. Please, no, I'm not that stealthy. Just no, not stealthy and not quite so expensive as the F-35. Yes, our apologies, folks. Uh, we have been working a lot on our radio show lately, and uh, in fact, in pre-production here, Grant and I have just been talking about that, and, uh, well, quite frankly, it's kind of killed the podcast, actually, so uh, we're going to have to think about what we're doing about that. So apologies for that, but we've got another nice long show coming up. Indeed, mate. Indeed, we've got lots of great content, and we're going to start it off by uh, going, hey, hey, been there, done that. I've been to Bali, too. Yeah, all right. So tell me all about Bali, mate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, who did you fly with? Let's get the airplane geekery out of the way. Well, that's the important part of it, and I have actually had a couple of people say they want to hear about the aviation aspects and what the GA scene is like in Indonesia and so on. And, uh, well, to start with the former, uh, this just to let you folks know, this whole holiday was a birthday present to my lovely lady, Kit, that I bought for her back in her birthday in March, and we set it for July-August, not because we knew the podcast and radio show would get in the way, but rather because the uh, July-August are the best time uh, to be in Bali, the tropical, oh, just on tropics kind of island. It's about five or six degrees south of the equator. Now, to get there, we flew Virgin, and because it was a special event, we flew business class on Virgin. Now, when you fly business class on Virgin, you've got three potential ways of going. You've got the long haul in the 777s going off to the Middle East and off to the US, and they have a rather beautiful business and I believe first class as well, so they're pretty well set up. Haven't experienced that. You could also be doing a domestic first class on the long haul uh, from coast to coast, which is the A330s, apparently also a reasonably good domestic product. Haven't experienced that either. What I experienced was the short haul international, which is flights out to the Pacific and to the north, and that's done on a 737-800. So you, those are the ones that go to Samoa, or the ones that go up to uh, you know, into the Pacific and so on, or the ones that go up to, uh, in this case, Bali. So it's about a five to six hour flight from Melbourne, a little bit longer if you go from Sydney, believe it or not, um, because you've got to cut across and around and so on. And the Great Circle is a little bit longer out of Sydney. 
Business class, front two rows in the 737-800 are reserved for business class. You have a bit of a um, colored plastic divider between uh, business and economy um, and a little rope that goes across between. So it's not a a completely separated cabin. Uh, That does mean you can stand up, look back and laugh at the people behind you, but I don't recommend doing that. It's not very polite. I did manage to um, resist the urge to do so a couple of times. But um, it's a... uh, the seat's nice and wide. Uh, the service is fantastic. The seat reclines, but not flat. I mean, you know, that's pretty hard to do in a 737 when you're trying to get a lot of people on. Uh, it, the one fall down with the seat was that it didn't have a footrest. I was um, a little upset about that. Uh, the footrest would have really helped. Um, food, yeah, it wasn't too bad. Uh, in all cases, it was uh, it was came through quite nice. The only problem was going over, you could either have uh, salmon, which I'm allergic to, or a salad. And the salad was a pumpkin salad. And that's really weird. I'm not very fond of pumpkin at all. And it was cold and all that but the other bits around it were great i ate that um on the salad but not the pump much of the pumpkin as we all know boys and girls pumpkin is the root of all evil in the universe i would agree with that along Um, with brussels sprouts uh, um yeah it's i think it's not the sole root of all evil but i think it shares it with the triumvirate of uh, pumpkin brussels sprouts and broccoli the other part was that uh, the 737-800 we're on had the new Wi-Fi based entertainment system, which I think is fantastic. You can download an app for your iThing or your Droid, uh, be it a phone or a tablet, prior to going on the plane. And in fact, they say, before we close the door and tell you to turn everything off, now's a really good time if you haven't already to download that app. So you, while well, you're still sitting at the gate and can use your, um, your 3G services, so you see a few people quickly downloading. And then what you do is uh, put your, your device into flight mode shut it off once the seatbelt signs off you can turn it on at which point you can put the Wi-Fi on, run the app, and it connects to the content server on the aircraft. And you can stream all the music and all the videos and fill in a survey. You can uh, show the map on your screen or the flight progress map, all of that on your own device. Very cool. I thought that was really great. And the business class seats, of course, have in-seat power. I'm not sure about the economy seats, but hopefully they have a USB port that you can plug in and run some power for your device, especially for a long flight. But the whole concept of Wi-Fi and streaming onto your own device Really cool. Bit interesting watching a movie on a small screen if all you've got is your phone, but you can also use your laptop as long as you're running Silverlight, which, you know, we try and avoid Silverlight being that doggy thing from Microsoft. But hey, it, you know, if that's what you've got to use, you use it. The other thing is that in business class, they give you a Galaxy Tab 10.5. And that was really cool. The, the graphics were great. And it already comes preloaded with some of the uh, music and videos. So you can use your own device if you want extra. Or if you don't have it or want to just use their device, you can use the tablet they give you. The only problem is that the headsets they give you are crap. Absolute crap. They give you these crappy little headsets. The impedance is too high. So the sound's kind of soft the speakers aren't that great and the earbuds that they that you put in your ears just the overall experience of their headsets just was crap and you couldn't hear a thing you could barely hear a movie or music or anything so once we put our own um, somewhat better headsets including the one that i'm using right now uh, my noise cancelling one uh, everything got a lot better and worked really well so great idea but being seriously let down by cruddy headsets so i have advised um, virgin of this and given them some feedback after the flight uh, via their website with a contact us form because all up it was pretty good i thought it was mostly pretty close to worth what I'd paid the the headsets let them down the <laughs> pumpkin salad let them down 
and the lack of footrest let them down. But you know what? This crew, as ever, 12 out of 10 for um, Virgin Cabin Crew. They were brilliant. They really looked after us. And the whole goal of doing this in business class was uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, remember the old days when people say, oh, I remember the old days, how good it was when we flew. And we've had this discussion on the Airplane Geeks a number of times. Mm-hmm. Um, you get people saying, oh, we used to have space. We used to get service. We used to get food. We used to get, yeah, and you used to pay five to 10 times more than you pay now. So if you want to get the old days and you want to get the service, toughen up, princess, and pay for it. Yeah, pony up the pony up the dollars. Just like you used to do, you know, going from Sydney to Melbourne, ha, hundreds of dollars, hundreds, like $500 each way, things like that were not uncommon 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It was enormously expensive. Yeah, more 20 years ago. But <laughs> you know, you, not many people flew because it costs so much. Well, guess what? If you want to have those heyday kind of feels, pay business, pay first class and get it back. That's the only way it's going to happen. If you if you vote with your dollars, you get what you pay for and the downhill spiral to low cost carriers and cheap jam them in at all costs, knees into the seat in front of you, no room to spread out economy is what we're going to get. And here I was thinking we were going to forward this to uh, our friends at Virgin Australia. Maybe not that last bit, Grant. <laughs> oh, no, that's that, but that's what's happening. I'm talking not necessarily Virgin, but some of the others like Jetstar and Tiger. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it can be quite tight anyways. in the back of a Virgin aircraft. But, you know, it's. Um, I think it's good for Virgin to hear this. I think, uh, you know, they did good. Their staff were great as ever. But, um, yeah, those uh, short-haul international business class needs a bit of work. Mm, absolutely, Grant. Now, you did mention briefly about the uh, GA scene over there in Bali or that area of Indonesia where you were. Um, tell us about that. Did you see much of it? Not a lot. There were some uh, corporate jets on the ramp at Bali when I landed. Uh, there is uh, the Bali Flight School. It's headquartered in Jakarta, but it takes advantage of the fact that Bali's got some great weather and uh, does offer flying. But they do most of their flying at uh, Lieutenant Colonel Wisnu Airfield on the northern side of the island, uh, also known in Indonesia as uh, Let Coal Wisnu Airfield. It's uh, it doesn't seem to have an identifier, but uh, yeah, it's pretty much all that they've really got. There's a lot of helicopters taking you to the various islands and around the place, and I imagine that there is some GA coming over from the other islands of Indonesia. But in the case of Bali, not a lot of activity. Uh, it was hiring helicopters for for charter, for sightseeing, for uh, acting as air taxis. That was pretty much what I saw there. Uh, Didn't really see anything in the way of Cessnas. Oh, no. Well, a world without Cessnas would be a very miserable place in my experience, Grant. Yeah, quite different to what I experienced out near um, Yogyakarta when I was there a few years ago while uh, you were enjoying the uh, Red Bull Air Race in Perth and I was stuck in uh, the jungles near Yogyakarta. It was quite a different experience because there I was seeing a number of military aircraft flying and also some light aircraft flying over that area. Maybe if I was in the northwest side of Bali, I would have been able to drop by and see what was happening with uh, with the uh, Bali International Flight Academy. But yeah, didn't get a chance to really go and do stuff. Was only there for a week, but not a heck of a lot of GA on the island. No worries. And of course, anybody who is a Facebook friend of Grant McCarran will have known, <laughs> will have had a blow-by-blow description of his entire trip to Bali. <laughs> <laughs> Including what he was eating when he was romancing Kit. I mean, Kit would be horrified, Grant. She'd be horrified if she knew you were showing all she that was, stuff. She was the one who said, yeah, post the photos. I was showing her what I was posting. Like, you know, And most of the photos were not of the food. There was only a couple of food ones when it was rather amusing. Mm. But otherwise, it was the places we were going for dinner and uh, lunch and visiting and so on. But ma- uh, ma- Maybe I found it very torturous because I've been on a diet this last couple of months. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the kilos you've lost and kept out of your cockpit have definitely... Um, <clears throat> 
yeah, come visit at me. I've got to go back to the gym this week and start getting rid of them. Absolutely. In fact, I'm 17 kilos lighter than I was at the last podcast, so there you go. Oh, well done, mate. Well done. I suspect I'm two or three kilos heavier, and I certainly have a bintang bear belly. <laughs> there we go. Well, never let it be said that we don't uh, give comprehensive trip reports here at Playing Crazy Down Under. <laughs> Perhaps too comprehensive. Sorry about that, folks. But, uh, yeah, that was that was the one. The flight back was pretty much the same. All, all good. But, uh, yeah, if, if they'd fixed a few of those problems, it would have been just brilliant. Okay, no worries. Fantastic, mate. Well, I'm glad you had a good time over there. Well, we were stuck here freezing to death in Melbourne. That was great. Yeah, well, if it's any consolation, I'm freezing a bit more than you are at the moment because, <laughs> hey, I was really enjoying that week of 24 degrees. <laughs> I'll bet you were. I'll bet you were. Okay, let's have a look at what's coming up in this episode. Now, we're going to have our compilation of uh, interviews and content that I recorded with Dave Jacker uh, earlier in the year when he uh, made his trip around Australia, including some interviews that I did with him uh, and his team uh, when they arrived back to Turidan after their successful Around Australia trek that was fantastic. Damien Rose, our Queensland reporter, has been up interviewing some people with the United States Air Force up there for uh, Exercise Talisman Sabre, which happened recently. In fact, Damien uh, got a ride on a C-17. Now, I, you know, not that I'm envious or anything, but he went for a ride on a US Air Force C-17 and a bit later on caught up with one of the KC-135 crews to have a talk to them. Uh, Grant, we're also going to play an interview here that you recorded with David Cotty at the Qantas Heritage uh, Museum a little while ago, and also another interview that you did with a friend of yours, Paul Giannottis, uh, and, and he's got some some, uh, really interesting history, uh, particularly when it comes to balloon operations uh, around this part of the world. Uh, but first, uh, I think we should kick it off and uh, somebody waiting patiently on the line, uh, ready to talk to us about uh, his preparations for the upcoming uh, 2013 Reno Air Races, our good friend from Pracy Racing, Mark Pracy. G'day, Mark. How you doing, guys? Well, it's good to have you back on the show, mate. It's been a bit remiss of us. I, I, I think the last time we spoke to you, you were uh, working up for the last Reno Air Races and we uh, we were going to catch up with you. But, you know, we've all been a bit busy between us and we haven't, so uh, uh, now you're preparing for the next Reno Air Race. So uh, tell us about that, mate. How's it going? Yeah, well, it's all come along pretty uh, nicely. Actually, at the end of the uh, uh, organisation of it, we're about five weeks out and we've finally got uh, insurance, I guess. Took all this year to uh, attain insurance and um, we're lucky to be flying. Okay, well, now I remember that being an issue last year, so I guess that's um, it's still something that hasn't really sorted itself out at all. No, well, with the insurance company... Within Australia, they had a policy change and they uh, they stopped all air racing insurance and or aerobatics as well at air shows. So we were pretty fortunate within the timing of the policy change. In 2012, we actually got in there and, and were able to do the race. Come 2013, we, we knew it was going to be a bit of an issue, but we sort of fogged it off a bit and said, oh, well, that's coming around. But uh, as 2013 come around, well, yeah, it became a real issue. So we just thought we'd be a bit clever and go to America and get in insurance and that quite wasn't going to be that easy because um yeah they wouldn't really insure an australian company would they well that that was the problem we thought we'd be clear well we we thought that uh when we first went to reno we'd have australian aircraft australian registered aircraft australian pilot australian license trying to stick to the theme i guess and that worked really well uh, until the accident i guess and that happened in 2011 which put all the uh, insurance companies into a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and uh, then things started changing after that. So at the moment, we're still Australian registered and Australian uh, licensed, but we've had to open up a, a company in Nevada, uh, a, a corporation in Nevada, and then we've had to get an American insurance company to actually insure that Nevada company that leases the Australian jet. So it's a big tangled web but it's 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 got across the line eventually. Sounds like a lawyer's picnic. 
Pretty much, yeah. It's it's pretty much like that. It's been a lot of tuning in front of letters and 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 uh, negotiations, but it's certainly not easy, and uh, it's only going to get more difficult, I guess. Well, Mark, uh, before we go on and talk about uh, the 2013 Reno E races, let's uh, step back to last year and uh, a pretty successful campaign for you guys, I think. Uh, you know, after uh, I think everybody was a bit tentative going over there after, as you mentioned, the crash the year before. But from what I can see from the results, you guys uh, had a good year. Yeah, we went pretty well. I mean, we uh, went over there, uh, of course. After the accident, everyone wasn't sure what was going to happen. And um, the way it all panned out, it all just went you know, full steam ahead. You know, everything uh, just went ahead. we done quite well. We got first in the silver class and we relinquished that and let it go so we could run in the gold class. So we ended up coming seventh overall out of about 15 jets and uh, we actually run in the gold race, which was pretty good And because that's where you want to be. You want to be in the gold race even though you, you win silver. Uh, we, you win in the silver class, it's still a good win and there's still nothing to scoff about. I mean, you're still uh, up against your other L39s and, and 29s and all other sorts of aircraft and, and all expertise as well. But, you know, the idea is to get into the gold. It's where all the premium pilots are and their aircraft and that's where you want to try and to better yourself that's where you need to be so we thought we'd uh let that goal uh let that win go and we we forfeited the win to uh run in the in the gold and uh, it was pretty good we can't beat experience like that that or not. how many campaigns have you guys done now uh this 2013 will be the third year so this is this is the third year coming on but we've been over there and we've done prs twice which we don't you only have to do once but you know you get the, the you get the aircraft on the track just to to uh test it and stuff like that so it's like it's, it's similar to race conditions but i shouldn't say that that it's race conditions because uh, a lot of things change and, and just because you know you come first in front of one aircraft today and doesn't necessarily mean you will tomorrow because uh, there's a lot of um there's a lot of things that can change in the race you've got more aircraft in the track <clears throat> with you you got more aircraft in the track and you've got uh, positioning depending on where you are following the aircraft in front of you if you're boxed in and you, you just can't flip across somewhere because you're going to run through straight through his jet pipe you know uh, we cut a couple of pylons last year because uh, we'll follow another guy and we'll just step in just on the inside of him because he was going wide then he decided to go close to the pylon which means we're going to we chop the pylon you know so there's there's things like there's a lot of different um, dynamics that go on that put you in different positions I guess uh, Mark uh, for the people who are new to the podcast and they might not know we've been sort of catching up with you for the last couple of years maybe you could explain how these races are structured in terms of pylon racing in general well pretty much it's an eight mile course you know so it's to, for simplicity it's like a Daytona race in with the uh, the cars that they're running in Daytona so you're an eight mile course everybody starts off line abreast which is a, a very fairly difficult uh, formation and it's a formation that's uh, not compliant like everybody wants to to, to beat everybody else so you know everyone wants to get the jump on everyone else so as you start off you're starting off with, with a um an aircraft that's going to take you around through the track and you have to run uh, run off him and you can't pass him until he's ready to let let the uh, races go so once you come down the chute you run down the chute all line abreast and he'll release the race release release you guys and once once he releases everyone's you know, balls to the wall uh, but you're not supposed to pass each other until you get to pylon four which is the first pylon once you enter the enter the race that 
can be a little bit of conjecture sometimes. I mean, uh, it, once everyone's running down the gunnels, everyone's going flat out. So the idea is first to pile on four, which is the, the inside aircraft, and then once you get around piling four, it's every man for himself. So um, you run around the track. It's a eight-mile course. Uh, the bottom of the course is 50 feet, so you're not allowed below 50 feet. <laughs> so <clears throat> how do they measure that? You're not allowed below R in Reno. So, <laughs> so, so if they see you go past it, Below the R in Reno, you can be uh, DQ'd, which is disqualified. And the top of the course, I think at the moment, it's 250. So once you're running past the crowd line, you're not allowed above 250 feet, which um, uh, people think, well, why, why is that? Well, that's in regards to collision and scatter course. So if you have a collision and the planes get uh, loose and uh, and decide to go uh, crashing off, that you're going to stay within inside the course and not uh, go out into the outer areas. So you, the course is between 250 feet and 50 feet. That's a pretty tight box. And you, high speed. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, you're getting around there depending on what course you're on. But, you know, generally you can, you, you uh, even the slower jets, you know, you can get up, up to, you know, 450, just under 500 miles an hour on the straightaway. A lot of the faster jets are getting obviously faster than that and they're averaging 500, kilom- uh, 500 miles an hour. Jeez. That's average. Everybody, when you get a speed, a few, I think we got around 435, you know, that's average. So um, that's as you're pulling tight corners around turn one and stuff like that. You'll pull a lot of G coming on on that, so you'll slow down. So that means that you're down the straightaway. Yeah, you're clipping about 500 miles an hour. So when you're at 500 miles an hour and you've got uh, three guys on your left and one on your right and grasshoppers on your windscreen, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, something's it's a little different. It brings the term <laughs> bug smashing into a whole new dimension, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You know, you, you're going screaming down the, the straight there and you're just thinking getting grasshoppers and the first thing you think is, I didn't think they were this high, but then they're <laughs> probably thinking, I didn't think you used to be that low. <laughs> you know, uh, Mark, uh, I've been to the Red Bull Air Race a couple I've never been to Reno, but I've been to the Red Bull Air Race a couple of times and uh, I was interested that you were talking about the, the different altitudes around the course. I noticed in the Red Bull Air Race, they sort of loiter before they go to the start gate and they, they sort of loiter around and when they get cleared into the course, they just sort of dive down at it to get as much speed. Is it that sort of strategy when you're trying to get some speed up or is it just sort of hold my altitude and go for it? Yeah, I've never raced the clock before like they're doing Red Bull. I mean, we tend to race each other. And, and look, you can do that and guys do do that too. Uh, but again, it depends what power you've got and where you are in the position of off the off the when you basically launch it can work with you and it can work against you by doing that because don't forget that it's a it's a you know six seven lap race and we're we're shedding like 30 kilos a lap and the planes are getting faster and faster and faster as, as the laps go on because the planes getting lighter and lighter and uh depending where you are and, and where you get trapped and, and you know there's a lot of differentiation between if that will work for you or not because i mean if you dive down you cannot pass on the inside you have to pass on the outside so if you you dive down well then everybody's you know you you just can't slip on the inside because you'll be dq'd so and you've got pylon judges on each each pylon that will will judge that and they could uh protest it and you you will get dq'd if you do something like that because it's all about safety because it's um it's about keeping everybody safe and uh yeah they don't like that sort of thing and and the class will pull you up as well yeah yeah we got our class president and uh director of operations you know Everything we do on the course and gets recognised from someone outside of the our organisation, which is our racing jets, our class will actually pull it up because we just don't need that sort of uh, attention. 
attention put on us, you know. Now, I think from memory, you mentioned about pulling Gs, and I think from memory, you're, you're pretty much doing the whole race almost at 3G, aren't you? Yeah, it's you can. You get spikes. You get spikes throughout the um, course, you know, and, and, and you can get decent spikes as well, like um, because if you get into a bit of jet wash and stuff like that and you've got to get out of it and then get back on the course, you know, you can uh, spike up a bit of G. If you misjudge a corner, you know, you can G a little bit too much to get back on course. And once you G up, I mean, you're losing speed. So smooth is fast. So <laughs> so they say smooth is fast. Smooth and on the line, huh? Smooth and on the line is fast. So but pretty much if you're if you're out in front, that's the place to be. Yeah, well, you don't have everyone's jet wash to worry yeah, about. Well, that's, that's, that's exactly right. So the further back you are, the worse off you will be because you have to um, you know, go through all their jet wash, which slows you down. Because once you start sticking left and right, left and right to, to maintain stability because you're running through jet wash, well, that slows you down straight away. Yeah, more but if drag. You're out, yeah, that's right, more drag. So if you're out in front and you don't have jet wash, well, you don't have that scenario. So you're going around as smooth as you can. So the course goes up and down. So as you get to the top of the course, which is, say, like turn four and you come around for turn five, instead of, you know, uh, turning left you might kick a bit of left rudder in just to drop yourself down into the course to try and ease the drag a little bit to try and maintain your um speed yeah so the less movements the better and if you're mm. in if you're in turbulence you know you're slowing down for a lot of reasons hey mark uh, you know you're flying an l39 uh, you've done a lot of mods to that aircraft over the years but is is the l39 still the predominant one in the jet class or is you, you're finding uh, increasing numbers of, of other uh, jets no the l39 is the predominant one in the class i mean you, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the fastest one out there which at the moment it is uh rick vandom race fives getting around on average you know 500 miles an hour uh, and uh, race eight which is Phil Fogg he's getting around like uh, two milliseconds right behind him and they're, they're neck and neck they ban the Vipers well they ban the L29s with the Viper mm-hmm. engines in them which they were getting like 530 miles an hour they ban them because in 2011 there was a bit of an incident with those there's a vampire getting around which is um, Pierre Wildman owns that and it's it, it got 500 miles an hour jeez um, in trick that one out of no, I don't think so. No, she just ran around fairly stock, I believe. But yeah, she ran, went around pretty quick. Uh, there's a couple of Iskras as well, which is uh, mm-hmm. the Polish uh, jet Lockie Onslow. He's Australian uh, out of Armadale. He's got a um, Iskra, which is yep. uh, race one. It's a uh, fairly fast little Iskra, and it's very small and and doesn't uh, it, it doesn't muck around. It gets going. It's pretty. Um, level pegged with the L39 as well. So it's it's very competitive. Yeah, it burns and, off a lot of fuel fast though, doesn't it? Um uh, I I think the fuel flow is pretty much the same as the L39. It, it's really? a bit of a it's a bit of a ground hugger. Like it doesn't like to get off the ground, but once it's going, <laughs> once it's going, it's pretty good. I mean it's uh it gets going once it's up and flying. But just to get it off the ground and climb out, initial climb out off the off the runway is a bit of a struggle. So if you're behind it and you're doing formation takeoff, you know, it can be a bit of a hassle being behind it. You sort of got to stage yourself if you're behind one of them. So you got to think, oh, okay, we'll just hang back a bit here because this thing doesn't climb too well. And yeah, what you don't want to end up overtaking him over the top or something. So, but when it's on the course, you know, it's it's going pretty good. So you mentioned uh, race one being uh, Lockie's aircraft, and he's from Australia. Yeah, uh, are you two the only Australians there? We are. Yeah, there's Lockie. Um, he's from Armadale. He's the 
he's in race one and uh, we're in race 6-6, six, six, which is the all 39. We're the only two Aussies out there. And uh, yeah, so we're both holding up the fort for the Australians over there and yeah, we, we, we try our best. Was there another team that went over to PRS? I thought there was a third team having a crack at it this year. Well, there was um, Charlie Camilleri, which was uh, flying in L29 and... That was uh, Miss Independence, they, but they uh, they never made it through. So yeah, so That's they're going to have have another go next year. Like there's a couple of issues with the pl- the plane and stuff like that, you know. And yeah, there's always something that's there has to, everything has to line up for you to, to get through. It's it's not as easy as what people think, and uh, a lot of things can not allow you to go through. It can be timing, plane serviceability, uh, conditions. Yeah. Uh, there was an incident on the track, you know, that slowed the things down. So that means the less t- less course time, and yeah, and all those scenarios will will uh, hinder. You know, if you're trying to get through, there was another guy. He never got through too. He was a uh, brigadier general in the air force. You know, wow. and he, he didn't make it through because of the incident on the track at PRS, and that took him out as well. So he was in L39. He was flying race 99, which he had borrowed from uh, Daryl. And he never made it through either because of the incident on the track. So on the on the course, which is at PRS, and uh, that that pulled him out as well. The incident that's where one of the L 39s there was uh, two students on the course, and one of the old certified guys, which the guys that are certified to race, he come down through on the course and end up colliding with uh, race ninety nine and <laughs> took the top of the tail off of his jet and then. Uh, had to try and land the aircraft, and when he put the gear down, he uh, nearly lost control of the aircraft and then retracted the undercarriage and re- regained control. And then they uh, le- end up landing the aircraft after three attempts with the gear up and mm. sk- skidding the full length of the runway to a stop. And, That's expensive. Uh, very expensive. Nobody's hurt, which was good. So his yeah. training paid off and uh, all the... All the instructions that the instructors sort of teach you to do and, and, and whatever sort of come into play and he, he was able to walk away from it. Everybody walked away from it. So it was a very close call. Mark, I wanted to ask you one more thing uh, that occurred to me about uh, last year. Of course, there was some talk after the crash in 2011 that, you know, perhaps uh, the 2012 one wasn't going to go ahead. What was the general feel amongst the, you know, what was the general vibe of the place? Was it just basically uh, business as usual when, you know, we're back into the racing and that was that? Or was there, did it have a slightly different vibe to it, did you think? Yeah, no, def- definitely, definitely had a different vibe. You know, a lot of things have quietened down, like, Everything over there was go go go. How can you make this thing go faster? You know uh, what? Uh, what can you do to make it go faster? You know, can we throw the engine out and make it lighter? Oh no, we need an engine. You know, <laughs> all that sort of thing. So after the crash and the incident, uh, all, a lot of that has slowed down a lot and uh, focused mainly on safety and certification. It, but it certainly has slowed a lot of things down in that respect, in like innovation and, and stuff. So, uh, I guess uh, it'll take a couple of years to get over that what happened because it was fairly horrific and um and, and what like you said what was going to happen nobody knew you know right up until we were racing nobody knew if we were going to race yeah. you know in 2012 it, it, it basically went right to the wire you know a lot of people a lot of experienced people that were there still didn't believe that we we're going to race even though they they, they said we we're going to within weeks you know so pretty fortunate, and the guys, which is Rara, the guys that run the show, you know, hats off to them that they made it happen, and they've had to work hard and to make it happen, and they certainly did, and and uh, pulled it off, to be honest, and incident free, which was pretty good. 
Definitely. And uh, this year, you know, we've uh, 2013 is the 50th year, so it's a big year. So everybody's, you know, on high alert and safety is going to be paramount and we have to uh, maintain maintain that sort of uh, stance, I guess, you know, and try and try to maintain it. It's, uh, you know, the last thing you'd want now, particularly in the current uh, environment around the world where everybody's just paranoid about everything, I think. It's uh, you well, know, another yeah, big incident and that would it, uh, not be good. No, exactly. And everybody is. Everybody is paranoid, you know. But uh, I guess the fortunate thing is that everyone but once you get on the course you know uh, the throttle always goes to the to the stops <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. that once you're yeah. there go 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 you tend to be flying around with your left legs jammed up on the throttle just to make sure it's all the way forward <laughs> so <laughs> and the, awesome. it's even the jets all the unlimited guys are the same you know you, you hear them talking about oh well baby this and baby that you know it's like yeah baby nothing you know the throttles to the to the firewall. Well, I should mention, folks, if you want to catch up on the Reno Air Race, you can always check out their website, which is airrace.org. And I note this year they've got an iPhone app. I think uh, from this side of the planet, Mark, that might be the best way for most people to uh, catch up, unless you, like Grant, don't have an iPhone, but you know, hey. Yeah, yeah. well, what, what year are we in? 1979. You yeah. haven't got an oh, iPhone. No, no. I'll be bugging. I have an Android, don't, eh? Don't get oh, him started. Okay. Don't get him started, Mark. I think I got away with it. Yeah, yeah. well, I've got some 20 cent coins you can throw through the Android and get your bit <laughs> oh, of Ow. Oh, the pain. <laughs> Oh, there we go, there we go. And, of course, we can also uh, catch up with uh, all Mark's activities there at uh, com. Hey, Mark, just before we go, tell us about the uh, the jet ride business and the aircraft import business. How are those? Uh, you know, you must be the busiest man in Australian aviation. Yeah, well, the airport in- import business is the young fella's uh, business. He hasn't been doing too much of that lately, but the jet ride's been going uh, pretty much, you know, as it has been going. It, it, it's fairly constant and busy. Uh, there's something new all the time. Time. We're always going interstate between Melbourne, uh, Hunter Valley, and uh, Queensland, and it's pretty busy. And and just in regards to um, coverage of the Reno National Air Races this year, live air show TV is broadcasting live to the yeah. world. Oh, nice. So, uh, you know, you can get onto live air show TV and you can uh, view the races there through the net. And it's uh, they're going to have a big screen TV there as well at the races. So you can, it's pretty much, they're at uh, Oshkosh this year. I don't know if you've seen it at Oshkosh, live air show TV. But uh, they're going to broadcast live to the world. So we're pretty fortunate for that one. So everyone can get a look at what's going on. Well, Mark Prosey, it's always great to catch up with you, mate. And uh, I'm sorry we haven't caught up with you probably for the last 12 months. That's uh, our fault and not yours. But uh, we wish you all the very best, mate, for your uh, 2013 campaign uh, there at the Reno Air Races. Once again, airrace.org and praceyracing.com. And, of course, jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. So you can still do that tagline, mate. Very good. You've got it down well. After a couple of years, you'd think I want to, mate. Uh, We'll catch up with you. Uh, We will certainly catch up with you this year after the 2013 uh, air race, mate. And, uh, you know, I think uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we want to see you bring back the silverware this year. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That'd be good. (laughs) No worries, mate. (laughs) We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. See you later. Plan your flight. Fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Do you have the need? The need for speed? Jet Ride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. 
from mild to wild, Jetride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jetride. Forget the rest, fly with the best. G'day, this is Owen's Up. Just a quick note to let you know that my new ebook, 50 Tales of Flight, is now out on Amazon and iTunes. Find 50 Tales and my latest updates at owensup.com. In the meantime, sit back, relax, enjoy the show with Grant and Steve. Welcome back. Now, uh, back in episode 108, uh, you'll probably recall, we spoke with Dave Jacker. Now, Dave's a quadriplegic pilot who at that stage was on the verge of uh, setting out to be the first such person to fly solo around Australia. Now, uh, as we record this, that flight has now been undertaken and successfully completed, and uh, Dave faced a number of challenges along the way, as you'll hear. Just quietly, I also think he might have been given the rock star treatment on uh, more than one of the places he stopped into around the nation, and uh, let's face it, rightfully so. Now, I recorded a uh, series of updates with Dave during the trek, and for those of you who subscribe to many of our social media feeds, including SoundCloud. Not many of you do, but for those of you who do, you will have probably caught up with most of those. You can get the full versions of those there. But what follows here is a compilation of those updates, along with an interview that I did with Dave when he returned back to Turretin Airfield just over a month after he originally set out. And of course, Turretin Airfield is just southeast of Melbourne. Now, Dave set out from there at the beginning, and he headed south across Bass Strait initially. Now, I first caught up with him while he was on his first Tasmanian stopover. And as you'll hear, it appears as though he'd struck an early challenge right off the bat. The oil pressure uh, started dropping and started dropping below into the into the yellow. At times it fluctuated a bit, you know, um, you have to have the aircraft anyway. So I wasn't overly concerned because the uh, oil temperature and head temperature was still, um, still fine and uh, they hadn't moved at all. So the oil maybe just a bit of a buzz in the, in the gauge or something like that. So we kept going and, uh, you know, Dodging rain showers and at two and a half thousand feet until we got to Flinders Island and landed there. And then one of the guys said, Oh, you're all dripping out from under your engine. And as soon as he said that, I felt absolutely sick. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought I'd done the engine or something, you know. So, you know, when I got out of the aircraft and somehow had a look, there's oil all over the front wheel spat. So uh, we pulled the cowl off and found out that it was just a oil filter and it uh, come loose or it was, um, or it was just leaking anyway. So, uh, we pulled that off and put a new one on and you know, did a test run up and down the strip to make sure it all seemed okay. And must admit, after that, I, I was a bit apprehensive even just making the the, the uh, short legs across from Flinders Island to Paddy and then to Wynyard. So once I got up in the air, it took off and the oil pressures are uh, all back on the normal and temps and everything were fine. So yeah, it was fine after that. But it was uh, when you think back on it, though, it was pretty unnerving and um, so you know. That's just flying for you, you know, you take off and everything seems fine and then, um, yeah, things can go wrong, but you, know, you deal with it at the time and it all worked out so fine in the end. So apart from the oil leak, I mean, the engine itself, it's quite, you know, seems quite happy in itself, it's running smoothly? Yeah, no, it's running like a dream. Actually, it's um, running very, very, very well. Um, I had a, did have another little bit of a glitch, actually, when I was, uh, we, we flew from uh, Finland Island and across the top of the north coast to Vineyard, which is on the western side, stayed there overnight and then, uh, flew down the west coast, and as I was just rounding the, I think it was called Cape Grim, uh, my oil pressure started dropping again. And uh, but my at the same time, my oil uh, temperature started rocketing up. And I was just thinking, oh, Christ, I've got to find an airfield. And uh, so I was just looking around the map, okay, what's the closest airfield so I could so I, so I could make it. And then they all went back to normal again. And so uh, that happened a couple of times. I actually figured out it was actually, I think it was a loose wire under the dash. Oh. It was uh, only a loose earth or something. So 
So that sort of, you know, made the uh, heart skip a little bit. That, that was the only other little, little issue that, that I had, and uh, it's all been fine since then. No worries. And uh, what's the scenery like going down, uh, particularly, I guess, the uh, the west coast of Tassie? I imagine it's spectacular flying down there. Yeah, it's spectacular, Rob, and it's uh, can be, uh, can be fairly challenging. We flew from Wingard and then uh, along the coast um, down, down to Strawn. So we landed at Strawn uh, with a fairly stiff crosswind and um, had to get some fuel. And as, as we were there, it was just blowing and raining and well, you know, showers would come and go. And, yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty ordinary. When we were actually about to pack up and uh, have lunch and, and get going, uh, the big rain shower came over. So we thought we might even be staying in strong the night, but that quickly passed. And so we uh, got into the aircraft and quickly took off and headed down the coast. And absolutely spectacular coast, coastline. We had to dodge a few showers on the way down. But, but yeah, no, it was really, really beautiful. Very rugged and very isolated. If you're, you went in the drink down there, uh, well, you know, that'd be it. There's just nothing around. But you've got to fly off the coast there, and um, it was great. It was really great flying, really nice. Only when you got down to the southern point, uh, south tip there around the Cape, then got a bit of, bit of roach off the, off the mountains there. It had a bit of north, northwest we're coming in. So, but um, it's true around a little bit, but it wasn't too bad though. But um, yeah, it was great flying and very spectacular. I said, so if anyone gets the opportunity, they should do it possibly in February, though, when it's a bit warmer and and uh, the conditions are a little bit better. Now, uh, just before we finish up on this quick report, uh, how are you managing in yourself, mate? I noticed uh, you'd mentioned there that you'd had a bit of trouble keeping yourself warm. You'd mentioned that when we spoke to you a couple of weeks ago. Uh, how are you managing y- your body and you know, and all that sort of stuff? Uh, not too bad now, other than the warmer climate. Uh, down in Tassie, that was, um, was, a, was a real struggle for me. It was, uh, the cold was the, uh, the killer for me. And um, when I actually flew in the bands, I was, that's why I was just frozen and also... Um, uh, I was feeling quite ill. I think it was because I was a bit dehydrated. You know, when it's really cold, you don't want to drink water, um, and it cools you down a bit. So I probably hadn't drunk enough. And, and luckily, the uh, the uh, Gibson Aero Club they they put on dinner for us at night. They had a nice big wood heater, so I was sat in front of that and warmed up and cooked myself. But uh, feeling a lot better now. So it's um, a little bit of a bug, but you know, I'm resting up today, and we're a big uh, big flight up to Caboolture tomorrow. As Dave began to make his way up north, trekking up the east coast of Australia he began to find it slightly less than smooth sailing, especially when he attempted his approach into Chute Harbour. Uh, the flag was quite low, so I couldn't get over the mountain, so I decided to go up the... There's a, a valley between two big mountain, or two big hills or two big mountains, I suppose you could say. As I was uh, tracking through there towards the bay, um, yeah, there's... Uh, I think there must have been like 28-knot winds uh, on, on the ground and at that height, a bit stronger, and I was hit by a sledgehammer. Three times my head hit the roof, and uh, my feet came off the foot plates, and uh, I fell over in the aircraft. And what I'd done pre- before before that happened, I I backed off the throttle a bit to slow the aircraft down because it was getting pretty rough. But uh, when this thing hit, uh, yeah, I went up in the air, my hands handled the controls, I fell over, feet came off the foot plates, and and the aircraft just started going into a, a slow turn. And when I looked up, there's a sort of like the ocean in my, in my windscreen, and so I was just. Try to get my, set myself back up and, and regain control, and uh, tell you it was uh, it was uh, very scary. The biggest problem for me was that the my feet came off the footplate, which meant that my knees were were in a leaning towards the right, and the control column is in the centre console, and so I couldn't actually use control to the left. I could I had free movement to the right to the centre, but then I couldn't um, bank the aircraft to the left because my knees were in the way. So I, I had to, I went out to the bay, sort of got out of all the rough stuff, orbited for a while just to 
compose myself, you could say, and, and think about what to do and uh, and try and move my legs over, which I did. But um, yeah, you're all alone and it's up to you. And um, I must admit, it was a very scary experience, but I managed to move my knees over enough and uh, I, I sort of flew out, planned the uh, the flight in um, to, the, to Shoot Harbour Airfield. And the thing with Shoot Harbour, it's actually between two mountains. And so you get this big funnel um, right through the mountains when, it, when it's blowing from the um, uh, southeast. And uh, it can be very, very rugged there. So I just planned my attack. I knew I had limited limited control to the left, so I uh, had full to the right, so I just stuck over on the left side of the mountain just in case it got blown across. But um, I, I got it down okay, and and uh, I must admit it was, it, was, uh, it was a very challenging landing, but uh, I was so glad to be on the ground. And I learned from that. Um, now I've got my feet, uh, I've got some mocker straps. I tried using some Velcro, and that didn't work, so I've got some mocker straps. Strap my feet down on the foot plates uh, that I've got installed in my aircraft and uh, just sort out the, the belt system I got there and put some Velcro on that so it doesn't loosen up. But yeah, it's all good now. So you learn from these things and uh, you get, get through it okay. The weather conditions continued to hamper Dave's progress over the next few days, which inevitably led to a few unexpected changes of plan. The visibility was, was was reducing, and one of our support planes said Innisfail was also um, it had rain there, so we decided to turn back and uh, and go to an alternate. Um, and I went to uh, Ingham, and with the other the uh, other support plane, uh, they they landed at Dunk Island. And unfortunately, the weather in the, on those islands, because they've got these huge mountains, they generate their own climate and they couldn't get out. <laughs> so three of them were, were stuck. And um, yeah, they got out the next day and we got stuck at, at Ingham for another two days after that. We just couldn't get out. It was, there's this, when you look on the weather map, there's this uh, weather pattern that just kept pushing all the all the moist air right around Innisfail. And, and mind you, Tully actually has the highest rainfall in Australia. So no wonder we got stuck there. Get, we went down the airfield in the mornings trying to figure out, okay, I would go west today, and it was just, you know, it was, it was close in. We couldn't get over the, over the mountain ranges and uh, couldn't go north, couldn't go west. So um, so there wasn't really much we could do except wait around and, and uh, wait for an opportunity, So which came up yesterday, which was go up to Cooktown, which was great. But um, one thing I didn't realise up north here, it's I knew they you know, with the southeast trade winds, but it's uh, very very windy. The last couple of days have been pretty um, uh, rough lying, just with all the onshore breezes, and you get a lot of a lot of the uh, the mountains and and um, which um, you know generate uh, you know a bit of rotor and and uh, sort of spoils the air a bit. I notice here uh, you took advantage of those winds today, or day thirteen here, Dave, uh, with a uh, ground speed at one point of uh, 138 knots with only 115 indicated, so uh, a pretty good tailwind there. Yeah, we've actually been very lucky. All the way up the east coast, we've had tailwinds. Um, so our flying time has been reduced, which has been great, and especially today. Uh, you know, leaving, um, leaving Cooktown today, you had a, a, a 150 on the clock. Nice. Uh, ground speed on the GPS. So that's when we came across, um, I can't remember the name of it. There's a, uh, oh, about halfway up, you know, there's a, when we, we, we went west, turned west to to get around this bay. Yeah, so we had some good ground speed. It was made, certainly it's made it uh, a quicker trip. Uh, which is great, and now we you now I suppose coming down the the uh, the western side now, so we don't have those lovely tailwinds anymore, unfortunately. But uh, we have to wait and see what the what the weather's going to bring us. But on the western side, the clouds are a lot higher and the air's a lot smoother. So um, you know, so uh, that suits me fine. The plane is uh, seems to be running okay, from what I can tell from your blog post. But uh, I note with interest that you uh, had a flat tire to deal with this week. Yes, when we it was actually it actually worked out quite well when we got out of. Out of uh, Ingham, uh, we were debating on actually whether we 
uh, go to Cooktown, which is only about a two-hour flight. Uh, then whether we continue up up north, go to Cape York, and then back over to Weeper. So, but when we landed at Cooktown, uh, we figured that it was it was pretty um it's pretty hard work getting up the up the coast uh, with the with the weather that was through uh, through Cairns, and we, we thought we'd just have a an early day, which is which you know which we need. But as I, when I got out, nice had a bit of a flat tire, so yeah, so we had to fix that. But the problem was trying to split these rims that uh, that's on the jab, uh, we couldn't do it. So it was, we were just very lucky that the uh, tire repair place in in Cooktown was still open on the Saturday, and uh, he ended up fixing it for us. And uh, yeah, so good as new now. So little problems like that, but you know, they always come up. But you know, you manage to get around them. It's no, no big deal. But yeah, but the aircraft itself is running very, very well. It's uh, certainly getting around, and hopefully it'll keep running and uh, we won't have any problems. Despite these challenges early on, Dave was philosophical. Flying's great when you when you have really smooth air and you get up high and the plane flies itself and you can look out the window and enjoy yourself. But I must admit, coming out the East Coast, it's been very, very stressful, uh, very tiring, uh, especially today for me, just because you've got to constantly fly the aircraft with the with the rough weather and also always, you know, changing altitudes and um, and just, you know, really watching where you're going. It certainly uh, wears you down over a period of time. So, um, so it's going to be great to have a break and we'll, we'll wait and see and see whether we uh, have a stop up in, uh, in Gove or continue to Darwin. The tour continued across the north of Australia and down the west coast, stopping at many regional airports along the way and included a few rest days in Darwin and Perth. We caught up again with Dave a couple of weeks later as he was preparing to leave Perth for the final trek east and back home to Turidan here in Victoria. Two things, I think the tube is wearing for some reason inside the tyre and then um, the tyre itself, yeah, it's wearing quite severely on the inside. So uh, I think it's uh, probably the, the alliance of the of the, uh, the wheel itself. So it's a bit difficult trying to adjust all that when you're on the, on the road, so to speak. So I'll have to try and do that when I get home. But... Um, Sometimes we're going okay. It's just uh, just wearing a lot more than what it usually does. Now that we've done it, we've done it a couple of times. They're actually pretty quick. So we know how to jack it up. The last time we used two forty-four gallon jet drums, a block of wood, and my wife's yoga mat. So it seemed to work work quite well. So um, yeah, they can uh, they can get off pretty quickly. And uh, the biggest problem is just trying to get the, split the rim. Um, so uh, we've been lucky and been able to take them to town twice. Uh, get the tyre people to fix it, fix it first. But um, but yeah, at least it's only been small problems we've had. Uh, we haven't had anything major, which is really good. Now, mate, uh, going up the east coast the first couple of weeks, and we talked about this the last couple of times we spoke. You, you really had a bit of a struggle with the weather, particularly the further north you get. But uh, as you've been trekking across to the west, have you had more favourable conditions? Oh, we did. Uh, after leaving Weeper, we had some beautiful weather uh, going to uh, Burketown, up to Gove, and uh, started another boy. Well, the most unfavorable weather we had was when we reached Kananara. Um, our trek or leg was to go from Kananara up to Columbaroo or Truscott, um, and then down to Derby. It's actually where Truscott we're going to land at, but we found out that there was a $600 landing fee per aircraft. <laughs> it sort of, Good Lord. Um, it sort of deterred us a little bit. So uh, we're going to go to Columbaroo, which is a uh, it's the most northwestern community uh, in Australia. It's, it's just nothing around it. It's so isolated. Originally, uh, we took off in Kanalawa to head up to Columbaroo, and we had to turn back. Um, we got a revised forecast from about a half an hour out, saying uh, thunderstorms and rain uh, in that area. So um, there's if you 
you, if you get stuck up there, you, you pretty much had it because there's just nowhere to go. There's nowhere to land. It's just so isolated. So we turned back and thought we'll give it a go the next day. And the weather forecast was much better the next day. So we ended up having to go inland, going from uh, Kunlar to Horse Creek and then to Derby that way. So sort of skirt around the the uh, the bad weather and it's um it's been, it's been unfortunate really I was I was pretty disappointed because I wanted to um you know, stick to, to the coastline as much as possible but also I was really looking forward to actually um fly at the horizontal waterfalls which are up that uh, up the uh, northwest coast there but um it wasn't to be um you know, at the end of the day we gotta you, you gotta make these decisions and you don't want to get yourself into trouble and uh you know um something bad happened to the team so. Uh, yeah, took the inland route. But the advantage of that was that uh, yeah, we got to see some scenery that we would not normally have got to see. So we threw out, flew out the Kimberley area, close to the Bungle Bungles, and uh, it was actually really quite beautiful. So uh, Lake Argyle was absolutely magnificent um, as we are flying early morning. And the uh, you had the you know, the sun reflecting off the, the water. You had some sort of low cloud hovering around. And as we're flying over these uh, mountain ranges, it just looked absolutely absolutely spectacular. So even though it was uh, yeah, it was still a great leg, and uh, just as long as the one we were going to do, so <laughs> make it any shorter, just to change the scenery a bit. But um, and that looks really beautiful. It's fairly unseasonal that weather up there too. No, every all the locals are saying yeah, it should be uh, sunshine and low thirties. But uh, for us, it was uh, low cloud. Uh, uh, rain and uh, that's about it. The intervening two weeks held many highlights for the team and they've made more than their fair share of friends as the journey continued. So the highlight of this trip so far has been when we landed at Burktown and when the school kids um, from the local school, state school, they, they all came out. Um, yeah, they greeted me and they gave me a a big poster with it all signed and said something nice on it and plus a, a box of chocolates and uh, copied the letters they actually sent to the principal uh, trying to persuade him to let them all come out to the airfield. So um, <laughs> that, was a, that was absolutely fantastic. Some of the letters are absolutely hilarious. So um, uh, so that, that was that was a real highlight of the trip. Like, like going in the Derby, Kanlara Derby, there was uh, uh, some of the local people who had uh, been following us. They came down and brought their kids and uh, yeah, it's been really good. It's been, um, the community has been so generous with their support, especially um, like FISA, the uh, Fire Emergency Services up in Western Australia. They've um, they're, they're amazing in Kanara, um, helping us out there because you know, we we Kanara took off and Tony Stevenson thought uh, he's the uh, the guy who's helping us up there. Thought oh yeah that's the last we'll see of them. Half an hour is texting saying oh we've got to come back. So he put us up again for the night in um, pay for all the accommodation and uh, organised uh, us with transport and stuff. So it's been great in in all the towns. Um, We've uh, had a lot of support, and uh, a lot of the com- local communities have been helping us out. Even the Country Women's Association in Derby uh, gave us their house that they have, um, and uh, we stayed there that night with FISA, also uh, providing transport and cooking us a lovely meal that night too. So it's been absolutely fantastic. I was going to say, mate, if you hooked up with the CWA, I reckon you would have been guaranteed of a good meal. Yeah, well, so the FISA put the meal on, but uh, CWA, they were lovely there, the two ladies we met there, and um, everyone's been absolutely so supportive. Yeah, it's, been, it's been really nice, it's been absolutely fantastic, and we're so grateful for all the help everyone's given us along the way. One of the goals for the tour was to pass the four outermost compass points of Australia, and during this league, Dave achieved the final part of that by rounding the westernmost point of the continent. Yeah, it was really, it was really good to get that done. It was, uh, in a way, it was, uh, it was a relief that we've achieved that because uh, I mean, the first three uh, that we did, you know, um, South East Cape Tasmania, East um, Cape Byron, New South Wales, and Cape York, Western Australia, they're all done so quickly. 
and this one sort of will be hanging out for this one for quite some time. And um, it's, it's, it's great to do. It's just great to, to get that over and done with. And uh, now our main goal is to, to get home safely. And how's the uh, support team holding up? Have they been enjoying the journey as well? This whole journey has been a, been a challenge for everyone, you know, flying for long periods of time and the uh, the heat and, and lack of sleep and that sort of thing. So, uh, But they're, they're holding up. They're doing an absolutely fantastic job. Um, certainly you know, giving me, helping, helping me fix my tyres and re- fix my planes sorting me out so um, they're, they're, they're holding up really well but uh, it's just been it's been a challenge for everyone certainly um, not just myself now I think we're on the homebound straight so I think everyone's keen to get home uh, we've been on the road for quite some time now so uh, yeah it's going to be uh, about four weeks now so it's going to be uh, yeah it's going to be good to, good to get home after all this but, uh, but it's been great and uh, it's just been fantastic meeting all the people and even in Canara so I, rent, uh, I stayed with my sister there so she was um, caught up with them two nights so that was which was fantastic. So nice. They've been travelling around and staying in all these hotels and uh, people's homes and for the mining companies accommodation. It's just nice staying someone's home and uh, especially a, a family and then be able to relax and just chill out for a little bit, which is really nice. And so it was that after 38 days of intense flying, Dave arrived triumphantly, although wearily, home to Turretin. After the welcome home festivities had died down a little, I caught up with Dave and he gave his summary of the tour. Well, I'm here at a Turretin and look at this, Dave Jack is here. Dave, you look a bit tired, mate. Have you been up to anything since I saw you last? Uh, just doing a little bit of flying, that's about all. A little bit of flying. Yeah. Congratulations, mate, and I bet you're happy to be home. Am indeed, am indeed. It took a long time. I took, well, it took a while to get home. I, uh, I got stuck in uh, South Australia, Port Lincoln, then Aldinga, so uh, it was just frustrating just being so close yet so far away. And, um, yeah, the weather just wasn't... Uh, wasn't wasn't cooperating was yeah that's right i was watching those weather patterns as you left uh, wa and i thought geez i think he's going to struggle getting across uh, all the way but uh you know a couple of days late that's not bad considering how far you've traveled yeah we're lucky when we got out of um mandurah um we we got behind a a front that was moving across and always thought that uh, when we got to port lincoln that's when uh we might run into a bit of trouble and we did obviously but um anyway we got here and that's the main thing we uh yeah it was a bit of a challenge yesterday only (laughs) flying about an hour (laughs) getting stuck and then uh to the last uh couple of hours today which is fantastic i was watching you on spider tracks uh, about an hour or so out just after you left uh, near portland where you'd, you'd stopped over and you had a ground speed according to spider tracks of 137 knots at one stage did you have a nice tailwind you must have had a fantastic tailwind uh, all day today <laughs> yeah i was even doing 140 knots at one stage so uh, you actually got back here i was pulling into the car park and you were just flying over i thought geez he's uh, he's done well <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a, it was a very quick uh, trip today, which which was good. It makes life a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, no, it wasn't too bad. It was, uh, it was a good flight, actually, apart from coming around uh, Cape Otway cause with the wind, uh, getting a lot of rotor off that, and it was rough. Yeah. It was very rough. Very yeah, rough. just trying to hang on and uh, <laughs> try and get the aircraft through. How was your focus today? And one of the, uh, I guess it's a real human factor we have to think about, you know, we broadly called get home soon itis or get home itis, I guess, uh, you know, you're so far away, you've been delayed a few days, you really have to really maintain that concentration and stay focused. Yeah, well, that was one of the things that was certainly in the forefront of my mind when we left or when we got the Nullarbor Hotel, you know, it was, um, you only, we only had a few days to go and uh, it's quite easy taking a few extra risks. So, um, so we made sure that you know we that we assessed each situation. We didn't get ourselves into trouble because you know going all that all that way around Australia and uh, you know um, uh, making a bad decision now uh, could have ended in disaster. So, yeah. so look, yeah, we uh, um, yeah, we made the right decisions. We we didn't push it. 
Yep. Um, and uh, we've got here safe and sound, which is fantastic. That's what it's all about. So uh, what's the next adventure for Dave Jacker and uh, on a wing and a chair? <laughs> Aside from getting home tonight and having a good uh, three or four nights <laughs> sleep. Yeah, I was in a rest for a couple of weeks, I can tell you that. Ah, oh, well, I never know. There's uh, never know what might uh, what might come up in the pipeline. I've always wanted to fly across uh, from um, do, do the deserts, you know, from yep. uh, from east to west. Yep. that'd be fun. Dave, this has been such a positive trip. Obviously, you wanted to take your message around Australia about what people with disabilities can do, but uh, also, uh, I think it's really a positive story for aviation in this country. What's the message that you know you want to bring to everybody from this trip now that you've done it? I think for me, it's it's really everyone has, has challenges in life, and um, I hope I can, you know by doing this demonstrates that you know it doesn't matter what challenge you have, um, you can still get out and, and do pretty much anything you want. You know, yep. at the end of the day, people we we are all only limited by what we think we can do, and people can achieve far more than what they think. So yep. just get out and have a go, and yep. uh, be surprised what you can achieve. Now, mate, I'm going to put you on a spot here. Do you think we could twist your arm to come back on the show occasionally and just talk aviation? Ah, yeah, I think you might be able to. I think you become a bit of a star amongst our audience now, mate. I don't think you have any choice in that matter, actually. <laughs> no, I'd be happy to come back. It's been fun to watch you, mate. It's been a privilege to speak to you around the trip seriously, mate, and uh, congratulations again. No, Steve, thanks a lot. It's been great. I'm here with Linda, the project coordinator for On a Wing and a Chair. Linda, you look just about as tight as everybody else. Have you been up to much lately? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> it's been fairly busy. Yes. Yeah. So how was it from your perspective? You must have, I think you must have been the busiest person on the team. I've had to speak to you a few times when I've been trying to tee up interviews and stuff and uh, very difficult to get a hold of and I imagine very, very busy. Oh, well, look, I think we've all had very specific roles and I think um, mine's been particularly busy at nights. So, you yeah. know, just doing all the uh, you know, backing up of all the, all the photos and video and... Uh, you know, all, you know, helping Dave out with the blog, and I think by the time, you know, that's about four hours each night. Yeah. So uh, that's particularly uh, the time that that I was busy. Social media, everybody says it's an easy thing, but it's it might be easy, but it's very time-consuming, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Facebook's a very, very busy thing, but you know, I think the. Um, you know the fun things been all the interaction we've had with people yeah. so that's just been wonderful having all the the support of everyone as they're following along and and you can see you know, as we've gone along it, it isn't just us it, it's really a um, all the you know we're all doing in this together that's been the whole point of this trip it hasn't just been about Dave flying solo around the coast of Australia it's also all the community involvement and all the you know we've, we've had so much generosity from people all around Australia who have just been there at the airfield to give us rides or help us with accommodation yeah. so that's just been absolutely incredible and so they're as part of as much a part of this trip as, as all of us so, absolutely and that's that's just been wonderful so all the positive messages that the whole team wanted to carry around Australia for you know what people with disabilities can do and, and what a momentous thing this is that's obviously been well received and obviously you uh, must feel now that you've achieved those aims yes well I think you know one of the other key things was you know just looking at just getting used to seeing someone as a person rather than just having that as the disability stands mm. out in front and just saying well if they're in a wheelchair or whatever their disability is it's not uh, typecasting as that's that's what that person is you know yeah. they can do a lot more and might have a lot more things going on in their life than you might expect he's obviously a first class aviator we've talked uh, obviously about the, the early beach incident I mean that's some first class uh, aviation skills to get out of that so it's, it's it's no fluke is it he's a very very skilled pilot I guess uh, he's very patient he's very calm and he can just uh, well he's a problem solver yep. I think that's really come through with you know having you know going from an able-bodied person right through to having a disability you you really have to learn how to solve problems well 
And mm. I think his calmness and his ability to solve problems as they come up and just persist no matter what happens is just the, what, what makes him achieve these things. So tell us from your, from your standpoint as project coordinator, once you got out there and maybe spent a couple of days getting into the groove of it, what was a, a typical day for you? Oh, a typical day? Well, I guess because I'm project coordinator and also Dave's wife, you know, we'd be in the same accommodation. So I would get up when he got up, which would be maybe four o'clock in the morning or Mm. 3.30 depending on on where you are because it takes him a while to get up and then uh, you know down to the airfield and I'd be phoning ahead and just double checking our accommodation and transport would be okay Uh, you know making sure that we communicated through Facebook and the social media and then you know the flight and uh, for me it was taking photos and also the video along the way Mm. so that was just sort of constant and then at the end of the day it's just all the backing up of all the all the information and making sure that it's it's well stored yep. and uh helping helping dave out with the blog and uploading all the photos yeah fantastic so uh, now you said you took photos and video so obviously uh, we talked about with dave before you left that you were hoping to do a documentary so uh that's uh, going to occupy a lot of your time now uh yes well, well i'm not doing that but that we've got people on board that are interested in doing that but you know yep. we didn't take as much video as we probably would have liked but you know that's what happens you get going and the trip just takes up so much time that there's you know there's a limit on what seven people can can do yeah. uh, when, when you're in seven people in three planes so well, we're all sort of multitasking and doing so many roles well, I almost think there's no limit to what you guys can do after what you've been through these last uh, five and a half weeks or so five and a half weeks I think you've been uh, yeah, yeah 38 days not that I'm counting is it the 38th <laughs> longest 38 longest days of your life or is it really you know if you think back did it go quick perhaps no no it, it, it took a long time yeah. <laughs> it was a long 38 days but just because there's so many things to do and you know packing up in the morning and loading up the plane and then packing you know getting it all ready in the yep. evenings it's just there's a lot to do every day yeah. so you know definitely was no holiday yeah. it was definitely on a mission to do <laughs> to do it in you know four and a half weeks which which became the 38 days yeah. no, it was we're on a mission to do the coast and we did it as best we could in the least amount of time i think you've done an awesome effort and i think you've done a particularly a great effort i think you probably would be even more exhausted than dave i'd say by the end of this so uh, congratulations and well done on a fantastic effort thanks very much thank you Damien Rose playing Crazy Down Under here with Jake Press from the United States Air Force. Now you belong to the 18th Wing, I believe, Jake. That's correct, sir. And you're down here in Australia for? Uh, we're down here for uh, supporting the Talisman Sabre exercise, um, basically practicing how we operate uh, with the Australian Air Defence Force and how they operate. How's it been so far? It's been a lot of fun. The Australians have been gracious hosts and uh, very generous with us. So lovely. We've really enjoyed it out here. Very good. What's your role in the United States Air Force? I am a pilot in the KC-135 Stratotanker. It's a refueling aircraft. And a beautiful, gracious aircraft it is from looking at it. So now, what year was this aircraft manufactured? This aircraft that that we're sitting in right now is a 1959 model. Right. It's even older than me. Yeah, and way older than me, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you come about piloting such an awesome airplane? Um, I I trained as a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Um, and I knew I wanted to be a pilot, so I uh, was able to get selected for pilot training. Uh, I did pilot training in Texas. And, and what then, did you fly there? Uh, in Texas, I flew uh, the T-6, and then I also flew the T-38 Talon. Nice. And then you transitioned into... Into heavies. Into yep. heavies. Beautiful. And this aircraft very similar to a Boeing 707, I believe. It is. It's, it is. A, yeah, it's based on a Boeing 707 airframe. Yep. With big, huge turbofan engines out the, the sides on the wings, I've noticed. Yep. Yep. 
And uh, so how long have you been flying for the Air Force? Uh, counting pilot training, I've been flying since 2010, so three 2010, years. right, and where are you based now? Um, me and my crew here are based from uh, Kadena Air Base, Japan, mm -hmm. which is actually on Okinawa. So uh, how long do you see yourself staying in the Air Force? Right now I have a commitment of uh, 10 years and I'm um, really enjoying it so far, so I guess we'll just we'll see how the career goes. and Potentially be there for the long haul. Sure. Yeah. But I guess flying an aircraft like this with the experience, multi-career experience you'll get, and obviously on heavies it'd be a fairly smooth transition into airline flying if that's what you wanted to do. Possibly. Yep. Yeah. Definitely people that do that. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Okay, what's your favorite thing about flying airplanes, Jake? My favorite thing about flying the tanker is uh, is refueling. I think it's, it's pretty awesome when a fighter who's getting low on gas uh, needs needs more to, to maybe they just get back to just home did. station yeah. or or to complete his mission comes up and and we help him basically to be able to do what he needs to do it's very rewarding when he's refueling what's your well obviously what's your role when they're down the back trying to engage mm -hmm. obviously, oh, can you just run through what goes sure. through your mind and, and what your <clears throat> job is up here sure uh, so our main role obviously up here is to uh, maintain a very stable platform so that it's as easy as possible and as safe as possible for the receiver to get so close to our airplane so the boom operator can refuel them. Um, so even if when the autopilot is engaged while we're flying uh, air refueling, it's our job up here to monitor everything very closely, make sure that we're flying stable and right where we're supposed to be, the exact speed and altitude we're supposed to be at. What speed and altitude would that be? Uh, it depends, uh, depending on which receiver. Oh, okay. So, so they, let's, say, let's say it was one of the Super Hornets. They fly Roughly. 275 knots. Knots, yeah. rightio. And then you could do that at any altitude, I suppose. It all depended on how much fuel they had to get to you. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Hey, look, Jake, really appreciate your time. I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay here in Australia and uh, a meeting up with our defence guys down here. And, and thank you very much for being on the show. Sure, it's my pleasure. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series, where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, Modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, air show reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world famous Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant, and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under show. David Cotty from the Qantas Heritage Collection. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Grant. We're here in the uh, in the Collection Museum here at uh, just above Gate 13 with some of the best views of uh, Sydney Airport. Also some great views of uh, some fine memorabilia and uh, items and engineering equipment and so on here. So can you tell me a little bit about what the Qantas Heritage Collection is? Qantas Heritage Collection is an incredible group of objects and material archives images, objects, which has been put together pretty much since the beginning of Qantas, since 1920. So there's always been a, a commitment within the organisation to save little bits and pieces of the heritage and sort of squirrel it away here and there. And it really wasn't until um, the late 1980s, early 2000s that the group of retired staff actually started to sort of systematically put the whole story together and put the files together and really sort of work on a, 
a consolidated heritage collection and that's pretty much the core of the heritage collection today that I look after. I've only been here for the last six months and it's the first time that Qantas has employed a full-time professional curator to look after the collection. So they've taken it very seriously and um, obviously we're only about seven years away now from the centenary of Qantas. So that's concentrating everybody's attention, I think, in, in terms of what's what the future and the next few years uh, will look like. But the Heritage Collection, yeah, the Heritage Collection itself is, uh, I guess, a, an evolving thing. It's it's here at Terminal 3, but it's also at the Jet Base, which is unfortunately not open to the public, but we have a Heritage Collection over there for the engineering side of things. But also, we're involved with things like the Qantas Founders Museum. Yeah, I was going to ask how this links in with the Longreach Museum, because you've, you've yes. got like a 707 and a 747 parked out there and various other aircraft and a whole lot of equipment and gear and museum and it's an incre- I'm told it's an incredible place out at Longreach. I haven't been there yet. How do the two link in? It's well worth a visit. It's based on the, the original Qantas hangar, which was built at Longreach in 1921. So that was the, the genesis of it. And Qantas, although Qantas originally was first headquartered at Winton, they quickly moved to Longreach. And Longreach has always been considered the sort of the, I guess, the, the first home of Qantas. The Qantas Founders Museum was established in the, in the 1990s as a, a way of commemorating the beginning of Qantas. It's not actually operated by Qantas. Qantas obviously have a, an interest in supporting the, the organisation, but it's actually a, a not-for-profit community organisation who runs the museum and they're doing a, a fantastic job and Qantas obviously supports them with things like donating a 747 and little things like that <laughs> just a, a little display item <laughs> um, and and we obviously sort of provide them with a bit of financial support as well and I'm, I'm actually on the board of the Qantas Founders Museum as well as well as our head of safety and so we're the two Qantas representatives on the board so we maintain a, a close link with the with the organisation but we don't actually uh, run the museum itself we just support it that's very interesting that you said the, the head of safety for Qantas is yes. on the board. Uh, is that because of a personal interest or is there a linkage on the safety to the museum? Um, well, John, John Vincent, who's our head of safety, is uh, very much committed to um, the heritage of the, the airline and he's very personally interested in it. So uh, he just maintains his involvement and um, very very keen to do so. I was just wondering if there was like a, a, a corporate dotted line from safety to museum or something. But... Not, not as such, no. It's, it's mm. more about people who are committed and having yeah. a personal interest in sort of in the history. And, um, you want yeah. enthusiastic people who really yeah. appreciate what's going on to be Absolutely. involved. So. And that's the thing about Qantas, there's such a lot of people who have a, a real passion and an interest in the, the history of the airline and sort of it's quite easy to sort of tap into that. You find all sorts of people who are really just really interested and want to support you. So that's been one of the things which has really um, been the most, uh, I guess, sort of pleasant and most heartening things about having taken this job on, how much commitment there is to actually support the history of the airline, you know, right from the very highest levels you know, right on down. So, yeah. You need that commitment if, if something like this is going to run because it's, it doesn't pay its own way and it doesn't cost nothing. It's it costs. There's a, as you said, you've got your own role here and there's the um, space and maintaining that and everything that's here. I mean, I'm looking at rows and rows of filing cabinets and aircraft models and books and how how much of the collection? Now you're saying this is part of it and there's more. This is the archive, I guess. This is the photos and the documents and some of the objects, but there's a lot of objects which are stored off-site at our Jet Base Museum. Mm-hmm. There's artefacts which are actually on loan to other organisations as well, so we, we sort of have a, a distributed collection in this material which is on loan to the Qantas Founders Museum. So we sort of have things sort of spread between three or four different places at the moment, but the core archive is, is what you're looking at here. This is uh, at Sydney Airport, and this is what we drive a lot of our... Um, 
you know, historic imagery and content which you might see on our website or on our publicity material or on our social media pages. We sort of make sure that we sort of keep the, the heritage sort of front and centre and try and sort of give it a, a prominence as, as part of the marketing and branding of the airline. It's very much part of who we are and the airline is very keen to maintain that corporate identity, I guess, in that history. Well, it's like when you're work, walking around the rest of the terminal here, got that uh, Avro 504K replica parked in one Indeed. bay. You it's can't just, miss it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the first thing you see when you come into Terminal 3. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then you've got various models and, and posters. They'll just be surreptitiously posted yes. around in areas. It's it's great. It's yes. You'll just be walking along and you'll see some commercial activity and then, hey, there's some heritage. And Yeah. I'd like to see more of that too. So, um, yeah, I think one of the things we're looking at is to maybe try and get more of the heritage items out into the, um, the terminals, yeah. not just here in Sydney, but maybe throughout Australia as well. So... Yeah people have that sort of surprise, sort of accidental sort of discovery. <laughs> it's not the fact that they sort of have to come here to the Heritage Centre to see it, that they can actually encounter it. And things like, you know, the, the Qantas clubs and the chairman's lounges and all that sort of thing, they can find this stuff sort of um, distributed around a bit more. So yeah. it's one of the things that I'm quite keen to, to work on in the future. You've got a huge collection. You've got a few spots. How It's, it's a perennial question of any museum or collection or something. How do you determine what gets displayed out there because you've got quite a quite a fascinating display happening here indeed well i mean we have themes i guess and stories and i guess what gets displayed is driven out of what stories we want to tell the collection here at terminal 3 has been there since 2005 so it's now about seven years old so i've tweaking the collection a little bit and sort of moving a few things around but I think it's probably now time that we're looking at a, a major overhaul of the, of the display. So what form that takes we're still not sure at the moment, we're still working on that. So it's fair to say that um, yeah, there will be a substantial overhaul in the not too distant future. So that's sort of like a step on the way towards the big centennial? Exactly, so I mean that's going to be driven out of what happens, what direction the centenary is going to take so obviously the heritage collection will have to be there to support that and a lot of the, the key messages and things are obviously sort of going to be taken from the heritage collection and the heritage collection will be pretty much front and centre of that centenary activity so we'll be um, you know very busy very very busy in the next seven years so trying to work all that out and support all that and, and get to a obviously a, a renewed uh, exhibition prior to the, um, the centenary in 2020. You're the first dedicated curator purely funded for the heritage collection how many other people are on staff? I, I work in the corporate communications area so there's myself and, and our, my manager uh, who works on special projects. So this is just the two of us really at the moment who work on heritage areas. But we obviously work within the corporate communications area. So as I said, things like the, the social media team, the public relations team, the marketing team, they all draw on heritage items. So I act as a, you know, a conduit, I guess, and an a t- internal advisor, I suppose. So if anyone's got a history question or they want to know something or people want to put something in a speech or a talk or publicity material then they can talk to me and we can sort of supply content for them it's very much a sort of a advisory role but um, yeah there's really only two of us at the moment who are full-time on the heritage side and then do you get uh, volunteers when you need to move things around and Indeed. set stuff up? well we have our volunteer corps of course who um, help us here we have several volunteers who work here at the terminal and then there's another group of volunteers who work over at the maintenance base at the jet base and probably about 10 12 volunteers working regularly at the moment What's your background in terms of to be selected as a as a, a official and professional curator? Well, my background has been mostly with museums and mostly with aviation-related museums. So uh, it's always been my area of special interest. So I've been working as a professional curator for probably just just over 20 years. I sort of first started to work in aviation museums down at the old um, 
Rabinair Museum down in Melbourne, where, oh, yeah. I, where I come from. Um, <laughs> so, just yeah. as a little kind of hangar rat working on you know, old aeroplanes on weekends and things as a teenager, which got me sort of interested. And from there, I, I started doing a history degree at Melbourne Uni. And from there, I did a museum studies degree, uh, a diploma, sorry, um, which then led me to working in museums full time. So I thought you know, I was interested in history, so it'd be good to be able to get a job where I could get paid for working with history. So that was where it came from. And fortunately, I was able to land a position with um, the War Memorial back in the early 1990s. Through that sort of gradually, that was my first sort of full-time curatorial job and gradually sort of working my way uh, through the War Memorial. So I was there for about six, seven years and I worked mostly with project management roles with things like the reassembly and final finishing of the Mosquito aircraft, nice. the one that's on in, in on display in, in the War Memorial now, the PR-41 Mosquito, the refurbishment of the Wirraway, the old uh, A2103, which was the, the only Wirraway ever to shoot down a Japanese aeroplane, and then ultimately the, um, the Lancaster disassembly and movement the Lancaster when that was removed from the old aeroplane hall uh, about 10 years ago so I was involved in that as that well. Was, that was set up in the G for George exhibit area. Now that's in um, the Anzac Hall uh, display at the back of the Walmart with the new sound and light display which is um, yeah, fantastic I'm sure many people would have seen that. It's definitely on my to see list I haven't uh, had a chance yet so it's, yeah it's that and the um, Peter Jackson made World War One reenactments and things that's like that. fantastic too yeah. yeah that's just incredible so yeah. and the Qantas actually have an involvement with the Walmart we actually helped to sponsor the aircraft collection as well so there's sort of a link now but I, I left the Walmart about 10 years ago and since then I've been working I worked at the RAF Museum Point Cook for four years nearly four years and then for the last six years I've been at Museum Victoria in Melbourne which is the state museum Again, mostly working with engineering and transport, which includes aircraft. So that museum has the first aeroplane that was flown and built and flown in Australia, which was the Diagon Diagon one, yeah. Aeroplane. So I, I wrote a book on John and Reg Diagon for the centenary in 2010, yep. the flight. So I've been involved with aviation sort of consistently right throughout that whole period. And this job came up about, as I said, about eight months ago. And um, yeah, it just seemed like it was a, a good opportunity. And a good excuse to come to Sydney. And a good excuse to come to Sydney. So you were a, a hangar rat at the Moorabbin Air Museum. That's um, where I started, yeah, yes. I sp- <laughs> spent a bit of time down there. I love that collection. You've got an aviation theme to your curating and so on. Where does the love of aviation come from? Is it if you always wanted to fly or are you just fascinated with them? Or? I mean, I have, I have done a fair bit of flying. Um, I'd had a student licence at one stage and I, uh, a mate of mine had a two-seater air tour aircraft and we used to fly we did three trips I think we did Melbourne Perth Melbourne Darwin Melbourne Cape York in the, in the air tour so I mean I've done a lot of that's a long way in an air tour in an air tour and a, yeah it was <laughs> quite sure I realised how far it was <laughs> you would have got but, quite um, warm in that bubble canopy a little plastic top yeah, yeah. you had to wear the hat the whole yep. time so. and uh, fortunately they've got a little rack at the back we call the hat rack you just sort of throw the hats in the back it's, um, it's quite a cosy little aeroplane the air tour yeah so yeah, I mean, I do like flying. I have done a bit of flying, but um, I guess yeah, it sort of comes out of my interest in history. And I think probably, I mean, I, like most people, I made model aeroplanes. But I think it wasn't really till I actually started working with the, the real aeroplanes at the Rabin Air Museum that I really developed a passion for it because you could actually sort of get hands-on. Mm. I mean, I didn't mind working with model aeroplanes, but they didn't interest me as much as working with real aeroplanes and real historical artifacts. So that's always the where I've been coming from is the, the real thing, the real article, the real aeroplane, the real artefact, whatever that is, whether mm. that's a, an old menu or a, a uniform yeah. or, a, or an aeroplane. The so history and the, and the, and the age. The ta- yeah, and the, the tangible kind of mm-hmm. aspect to it, which is what museums are all about, actually. Yes. So, 
and the fact that I was able to sort of maybe earn a dollar by doing it by you know working in museums well that's you know that was an added bonus really so it's always good when that happens isn't it yeah so <laughs> it just kind of evolved really and just sort of one thing led to another and just uh, that's the way it went now you've mentioned models and model aircraft and we've got a lot of models on display here mm-hmm. and also out here in the uh, in the storage area including a few models here of uh, aircraft that have Qantas livery but never really flew like uh, as we were just pointing out, we've got the Concorde, and it looks like an MD-11. Indeed, that's one of the more fascinating things. We've got these really quirky little objects that people might not expect. I mean, you talk to people and say, uh, did you know that you know, Qantas had an order in for four Concords at one stage? And sort of, they just look at you strangely, and they did. They had, they ordered four Concords and six of the um, Boeing 2707 supersonic aeroplanes. You know, the 1970s were going to be supersonic. I mean, that was all about. And, that was uh, the buzz. And it just never happened. And obviously, various manufacturers tried to sell Qantas aeroplanes, various models of aeroplanes over the years. And of course, the first thing they did was sort of get a model and whack Qantas colours on it, present it to the chief executive. So, um, and we've ended up with a lot of those models, and they provide a quite fascinating history of you know, what what might have been or the sorts of aeroplanes that Qantas evaluated over the years for service, but for whatever reason, never never actually went on to buy. Well, you've got uh, as you come in the lobby, you've got your um, uh, Da Vinci to Sputnik collection, which sort of shows from the first concepts, conceptual ideas of man thinking about getting out of, well, into the air and off the ground. And you've taken it all the way to space with that little collection there at the front. It's quite, there's a lot of good little models. and They're fantastic everything. and they spent a lot of time. It's actually interesting because I looked through the archives here about how they put that together and um, they spent years actually trying to get the details right. And it's the most obscure little details. They used to write away to museums and yeah. they spent many many years actually sort of tying down the research before they actually started to build the models and the, perhaps these days it's a lot easier to find that information but in those days before the internet they had to actually oh, yeah. sort of you know, write letters and took weeks or months to sort of get replies back and things so it took took them a long time to put the information together but that goes back to 1960 of course which was the 40th anniversary of Qantas and that was why that collection was put together and it ended up being toured all over the world and was quite quite well known and it was at the powerhouse museum I think at one stage now that we've got our own facility that we were able to sort of have it on display here with our own collection so it's quite well known I guess yeah. now it's one of the more famous sort of Qantas historical memorabilia that we have yeah. Is it all Qantas in the collection because it's come from a long way and there's Jetstar and there was Australian Airlines and what, what have you got in the collection? Well, it's actually interesting because the Qantas Heritage Collection now incorporates a whole lot of other airlines that people might not think about. There are a whole lot of regional airlines, for example, that were acquired by the Qantas Group over the years, such as Sun State, East West, uh, Eastern Australia Airlines, Murray Valley Airlines, you know, all these sort of small Noosa Air, all these sort of weird little airlines which have sort of rolled up into Australian Airlines. And then eventually, in 1992, when TAA, which became Australian Airlines, was then acquired by Qantas and rolled up into the Qantas Group in 1992. So we actually look after the heritage of all those little airlines, plus TAA and Australian Airlines, of course. So they're now considered part of our heritage because they're now part of the Qantas Group. So there's a group of people in, in Melbourne who operate the TAA Museum, So and they actually operate their museum inside the Qantas training uh, building in Melbourne, in mm-hmm. Airport West. Mm-hmm. So we support those guys, and also the TAA first aeroplane, the DC-3 Horton, Horton, which operates in Melbourne. So, again, we provide support, and that's based at the Melbourne uh, maintenance base at, yep. at Tullamarine. So, Been on that one. And there you go. So that's that's part of our, our heritage uh, mm. remit as well. So we look after TAA, Australian Airlines, and those other small regional airlines, which are now all part of Qantas. And are you also extending that out to tracking, like I noticed we've got a model here of the revamped Australian Airlines that was doing international out of Darwin for a bit until, until Jetstar, really? 
took over. Indeed. Well, that, that was it then rolled up into Jetstar. So. Mm. And of course, yes, we look after the history of Jetstar as well. So yeah. uh, so that's something we, you know, we've got all those sort of different brands, I guess, that are now part of the Qantas Heritage Collection. So it's not just Qantas, it's yeah. a whole lot of other organisations as well. Okay, in the past, you would have had some photos, some documents, some things don't survive, some do. So imagine you've got some artefacts and the number of artefacts must be growing. And these days, with everything on social media, online, video, the multimedia scenarios, how are you keeping up with collecting everything? Uh, how, how do you cast your net to know what to keep and what to throw out? Well, that's, I guess that's really the, the, the art of curatorship, I suppose, and sort of how do you do that? I mean, we, we certainly collect items actively and people sort of come to us i guess in the in the first instance what i'd really like to get involved with is um, the fact that we need to catalog the collection it's not actually catalogued as such at the moment so we're working on that and out of the cataloging i guess you can actually look at the whole collection to see where the strengths and weaknesses are and i guess at the moment it's a bit hard to assess what we have and what we don't have and where we should be collecting in the future and i guess a lot of that we've driven out of the cataloging project which we're embarking on to actually sort of look where where we need to focus our more our collection on in the future. So that's one of the, I guess, the medium to longer term things that I'm, I'll need to be um, uh, looking at as part of that whole project. And are there any plans to enhance the web presence of the Heritage Collection so you can do a multimedia view through what you've got? Indeed. Well, the, the long-term plan is that driving out of the catalogue, we'll be able to actually put uh, material up on things like in-flight entertainment. Of course, Qantas is going to a tablet-based in-flight entertainment system, so we could actually load up content straight out of the database and into the um, in-flight entertainment system where people can actually sort of scroll through videos, the old you know, 1970s Qantas advertisements, the newsreel footage, you know, photographs, pictures of the, arc, of, of the, the memorabilia, and they can just you know, sit on their international flight and just sort of scroll through stuff and just sort of browse through the archive, basically, yeah. which is you know, yeah. great. That's great, yeah. That's what's the power of the internet and the multimedia world is that getting the information out and spreading it around to people. So, and yeah. to do that, we need to digitise. So we've, we've already started to do that with you know, getting proper scanners and digitising our images and our, our footage, our film footage and sort of being able to use that a lot better and, and utilise that. But again, that's all, that'll all be driven out of the database. Mm. So the database is actually going to be pretty critical. Cataloguing becomes even more critical when yeah. you've got to link it up to... It's not just about knowing what you've got and cataloguing, it's also making it accessible. I certainly see it as my key task in the next few years. Given everything that's here, and I'm probably going to ask the famous question, which is like, which of your children do you prefer best? You know, do you have any particular item or items in the collection that you really love? Yeah, it is one of those questions. <laughs> which is your favourite? Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it sort of it varies. I really like uh, some of the the advertising and the promotion and the leaflets, the the artworks and the posters. I think of all the items, I really like the posters the best. Some of the old advertising graphics and artworks. We've got a fantastic collection of those. The 19 sort of 30s ones. I mean, I like Art Deco. Yeah. They're just the, the graphic art and the design and all that. And a lot of it, you know, quite famous designers worked for Qantas and did artwork design over the years. And we've got a whole lot of those. They're wonderful. I'd really like to be able to sort of utilise those more in various places. So I guess if I had a, a collection of things, I guess that's probably the one I really like yeah. best of all. That change. That graphic design yeah. sort of look. Yeah, I guess that's probably the, and that's sort of one of the things that Qantas is well known for. I guess that sort of graphic design. It's always been a strong part of their brand identity. Yeah. Now you're uh, looking to promote the fact that the uh, heritage collection exists and that we're here above Gate 13 and come on in any time. Indeed. Uh, yeah, people are welcome to visit any time. Um, it's open uh, 9:30 to 4:30 Monday to Friday. Unfortunately, we're not open on the weekend just because the people who staff it are, are here at the meeting rooms and they they don't work on the weekends. So it's just a question of staffing at the moment. 
moment, but certainly during the week, people are welcome to come in and have a look. Yeah, absolutely. So it's open uh, just yeah, up the stairs and yep. next to Gate 13, yeah. Okay, David, is there anything else you'd like to say about the collection and where it's going? We're very much sort of keen to actually um, improve the collection and sort of add to it. So next year, for example, is the 75th anniversary of the introduction of the C-Class flying boats. So we've got a good collection of material, but if anybody knows of uh, material which uh, we might be able to either acquire or, or loan for, um, for display uh, in the next 12 months or so, then, yeah, look, I'd be very keen to hear from them. And they can contact you by looking up the Qantas Heritage Collection? They can. Uh, they can look up Qantas Heritage Collection. There's an email. It's heritage at qantas.com.au. Heritage at qantas.com.au. Not a bad one to have. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, David, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Paul Giannotis, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Now, I understand you um, finished up your flying career on the uh, classic 747s, the 200s and 300s and so on. That's correct. But uh, how did it all start, mate? Um, I started off in aviation in 1965. When I became an apprentice with Butler Air Transport in Sydney, Arthur Butler was one of the early Australian pioneers in in aviation and he was well respected for his achievements. For example, um, he set a world record for flying in a Compass Swift aircraft in about 1932 and that was from England to Australia and the smallest aircraft to undertake such a journey. And he did in just over nine days, and the record still stands. That's a pretty good record to have. Because mm. Compass Swift, I'm trying to remember what that looked like. It's open it, cockpit, or...? No, um, actually the pilot couldn't see out the front of it. <laughs> he oh, wow. could, yeah, it was just uh, sideways. It was very sleek. Top uh, main plane was level with the uh, with a cowl. Okay. And it was a Pobjoy engine, a radial, and I think it was a five-cylinder. But it went very, very well. Yeah. I mean... Sounds like it was very streamlined. So, um, but unfortunately, Butler Air Transport was swallowed up by Reg Ansett in 1968. And I finished my apprenticeship with Ansett A&A, as it was then known. Um, I then became a a LAMI, that's the Licensed Aircraft Maintenance Engineer. Yep. Endorsed on DC-3s and Viscounts. Wow, it was the Viscount was a turboprop, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. So, Dart engines? Yep, yep, the good old darts. And so that, that's right. That's interesting because you've got the, the classic DC-3 with those big Pratt & Whitney radials. That's right. And one of the, I think the Viscount was the first aircraft to use the darts, wasn't it? The Hadley Page Herald had them. Okay. And it might have uh, preceded the uh, that I don't know. It was very early, though. It was, yes. Yep. Uh, and anyway, my interest uh, in all things uh, aviation beckoned me to England, where I went to the Farnborough Air Show in 1964, and while there, I took up employment with British European Airways. And uh, BEA was located at London Heathrow, and I was working on Viscounts and Vanguards and, uh, and the famous Comet. Yeah, the actual, the, the Jet Comet. As That's in right, the, um, the DH... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the jet comet had four Avon engines in it. Yeah, the, the, the first jet transport. That's right. And while I, was, uh, while I was living in London, I met up with an old colleague in Australia who told me that Kuwait Airways were looking for engineers to maintain the new Trident aircraft. You sort of left BEA at, while it was still BEA before it got picked up by That's BOAC. Right. That's right. Yep. So I left BEA and joined Kuwait Airways... They sent me to the old de Havilland factory at Hatfield for the Trident and Comet course. Finally, when I went to Kuwait uh, on a one-year contract, I was there for the whole time. Kuwait was a fascinating place to live in. Very, very hot. Was it, and, was and it dry. dry? It, it was, was a dry. 
<laughs> Dry as in literally. <laughs> literally, it literally was, yes. No booze. That's right. Oh, how did, how did an Australian survive over there with no booze? Well, um, not only the Aussies, but a lot of, uh, lot of expats were there, like uh, a lot of the Poms were there, English people, that uh, they used to make their own uh, bootleg uh, <laughs> whiskey. A few never whiskey. They, they called it Flash. <laughs> and it was Flash on the rocks and Flash with Coke, Flash with, with, with lemonade. You had to be very careful when you distill that because uh, you could end up with wood alcohol. What's wood alcohol? It's... Uh, Is that as in poisonous? It can be, yes. However, when... Uh, yeah, I finally went to Kuwait on a one-year contract... But would you believe it, they made me and two others redundant at the end of the contract. But they were looking for flight engineers. So they rehired me and trained me as a flight engineer on DC-6s. One year later, they were phased out and I was sent back to Hatfield to do another course on the Trident. But this time as aircrew. Two years later, they sent me to Seattle for a 707 course. And I stayed with Kuwait Airways for a total of six years. But then I joined Cathay Pacific in 1973 and as a flight engineer on the uh, Convair 880. So you were based out of Hong Kong then? That's right, yeah. We lived in Hong Kong. And in the meantime, I joined the Aero Club of Hong Kong and to do something I always wanted to do, um, I got my fixed-wing private pilot's licence. So were you flying out of Hong Kong? That's right. Out of Kai Tak? That's right, the old... uh, (laughs) Airport. So mixed in amongst all the all the Tridents and 707s and everything, you were flying what? Um, a Cherokee 140. <laughs> so um, as as we just said, the old the old airport was known as Kaitak Airport, with a 12,000 foot runway. Not bad for learning to fly on a small <laughs> Cherokee 140. <laughs> Did you have to do the uh, fly down to the checkerboard turn right? Uh, yes. You remember the checkerboard, did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And you did that in a Cherokee. That's right. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but also we had a, a light aircraft hauling pattern, 1,000 foot above the old reclamation area uh, beside the runway. Yep. And that was unbelievable just to see, uh, while you're in the circuit, big 747s coming into land. Because that would only be a few hundred feet below you, wouldn't they? That's right, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, one had to be very careful of... Um, uh, turbulence because of the heavy aircraft um, and obviously we needed a, a bit of a, a crosswind to get rid of the turbulence so uh, that one that's where we had to be very careful of and then suddenly hot air ballooning came into my life now now okay you've already you're gonna ask me, me how why? no no you, you you blow me away you're in hong kong you're operating out of kai tak in a cherokee yeah in amongst all the jets yeah. doing the whole checkerboard turn right routine and now you're going to try and tell me that you were doing hot air ballooning in Hong Kong as well. That's correct. Um, Where? <laughs> well, um, how, how it all started, one of the uh, Cathay captains, who was as mad as a hatter... <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> ...bought a balloon and asked for others in Cathay to, to join him. And they all said, you're all mad, they said. <laughs> so we formed our own balloon club and uh, we eventually got our licences in, in England. Now, um... In the new territories in Hong Kong, which is over the uh, over the little mountain range that we've got, there's the, some old rice paddies that uh, are all disused. That's where we we used to do our flying. So, are they still available? Is that still rice no, paddies? No, that's is it all, all built, built out yeah. now, a lot of it. So, yes, we did free fly in Hong Kong. <laughs> and uh, because Cathay Pacific were flying to Japan, the Japanese 
office thought it was a great idea to have their own, so uh, their own balloons. So we used to fly these for them as well. Uh, is this somewhere in Saga? In Saga and no, Brazil? no, it was just north of um, Tokyo, a place called Watarazi. Again, a rice growing yep. area. And then we used to go to Australia, being uh, working for Cathay Pacific and flying their own uh, balloon. In fact, I forgot to mention that when this mad skipper bought his balloon from Cameron's, he said to uh, Don Cameron, oh, well, we might as well have, uh, have, the, have the balloon made in, in the colours of uh, Cathay Pacific, make it uh, uh, green and white. And while you're at it, put Cathay Pacific on it as well. <laughs> he didn't say anything to Cathay Pacific at all. But when they saw the balloon in Hong Kong on, on Tether, they thought uh, that's a great idea, so uh, they gave uh, gave him the, the, the price of the balloon. Oh, wow. However, before all that happened, before we did our free-flying in Hong Kong, the balloon was only there um, a, a few months and was on tether in the, in the city, that is, at the old uh, cricket ground in, uh, in, in Central in Hong Kong, and we uh, desperately wanted to do our free-flying and uh, when, it, when this was put to the Director General of the Hong Kong Civil Aviation Department, he says, no way will a balloon ever fly in, in Hong Kong. So he was on leave uh, a few months later, and we asked the, his deputy to, take, uh, to, to come with us on a free flight. So that's how we started free flying <laughs> in Hong Kong. That's very canny. While the, while the boss is away. And get his, get his deputy in for a flight. <laughs> that's yeah. right. So everything went well, and uh, that's why we, how we continued on. So how long were you with um, with Cafe Pacific as a flight engineer on the 7-4s? I was there for 20 years. Okay, so you went you started... Which was the aircraft that you were flying? Was the 707 at first with Cafe? Uh, 707 days with, with Kuwait Airways. But when I joined Cafe, it was a Convair 880. That's right. Then after that... Uh, it was a 707, then a TriStar, then uh, then the 747. And you started with the 100 and went to the 300, or no? There was no such things as one. Well, Pan Am were the first to operate the 100 many many years ago, and then the 200 and and the uh, SUD as we discussed earlier. <laughs> stretched, <laughs> the stretched stretched upper deck, which then they discovered meant sudden unexpected oh, death. Oh, is that right? <laughs> and that's when it became the EUD, the extended upper deck. Yeah, that's right. So that was a 300 series. Now you've flown Cherokees. What other light aircraft have you flown? Oh, just the Cessna. Yeah, one five. To. Have you done any flying since you left Hong Kong or in other parts? It was all just... Not really, no. As I said before, that uh, ballooning was, was more fun. <laughs> Got more fun out of it. So, so uh, you've become a 100% balloonist. Now, you're still flying balloons at the moment? I am. Where else have you flown balloons? In we flew with um, a film company that wanted to use a hot air balloon as part of their script. They wanted uh, some romantic way of flying and I thought a hot air balloon is just what we need so uh, the script was taking a, um, a young Aborigine boy to different parts of the world so he could learn he could learn different different cultures yeah that's it sorry oh, different right. cultures yep. so they went to Korea and we uh, we had Rolf Harris as the main main actor and Ruth Buzzy was the leading uh, actress and the idea was to uh fly this little boy around and land in villages and um, meet up kids his own, own age. Because we're using 
the pilot dressed up as Rolf Harris with a beard and so forth, all force, of course, a false beard. Uh, we got airborne, or got him airborne, and um, we had all the, all the paperwork with us and everything. Everything was, everything was correct. But then um, the Korean army were informed that a, a strange object was coming in from the north. So a CIA-trained uh, uh, Korean agent strapped a pistol on his belt, got into a spotter aircraft and took off and started circling around the balloon. And this same mad captain I was telling you about earlier, the same guy, who <laughs> was standing in the, in the balloon saluting to this, this little aircraft saying, don't shoot, don't shoot, you, you fools, I'm British. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. So anyway, when he landed, the British came. Uh, sorry, the Korean army came along and uh, nabbed him. And they thought, oh, here's a guy with a with a false beard. You know, obviously he's a spy. They were whisked off to to the army barracks. We know what to do. So we packed up the balloon and started looking. We went down this uh, this road, and we're there it was about half an hour later. We found the spotter pilot and our balloon pilot um, drinking beer. <laughs> Once all was always sorted out. Everything all. was sorted out. Yeah, the right paperwork was produced and everything was sweet. <laughs> so that was quite uh, quite, an, quite an episode. We did some records while in our, within our club in Hong Kong, which um, all took place in northern Western Australia in 1980. And um, our balloon chief got an altitude record, uh, a British altitude record for 31,000 feet. In Australia? In a, Yes, in a 77,000 cubic foot balloon. Oh, wow, that's pretty Lake small. Seven, yeah. And Ron Tafe, the guy that you interviewed at Werribee, he got a, uh, a national distance record for Australia, uh, 330 kilometres distance. That's pretty good. And then a, week la- uh, sorry, a month later, I went down and to Northern, the same, same spot, and I had a very small balloon. It was a 31,000 cubic feet. Normally carries two cylinders, but I had five. And my aim was to go for for a distance uh, uh, well record for that size of balloon, and that was from Northam to Wickhampen, which is 152 kilometres. And uh, I was lucky enough to to break the record, so uh, I held it for about six months. That's pretty good, actually. That's they, right. they normally go pretty pretty quickly. Someone goes, "Oh, right. I'll beat that." That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was was actually dormant for about six or seven years and I met the guy that I finally uh, took it off in, the, in America at uh, World Championships a few years back and we shook hands and he, he gave me this rolled up bit of paper and said there you go there's a diploma from me to you <laughs> <laughs> that's good so that was actually Australia's first world record and um, it only lasted for six months and then a woman doctor in America took it off me Pass the baton. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, how often do you get to go flying these days? Now that I'm retired, more than I used to. Well, that's good. I go to the Canberra Balloon Festival every year. In fact, I haven't uh, missed since uh, I haven't missed a year since 1987. 1988 was the big one in Canberra because of uh, the bicentennial uh, celebrations. So, a lot of balloons came from overseas including me, because I still work for Cathay Pacific at, at the time, and I took the Cathay Pacific balloon, so I was one of the overseas entrants. And um, I've been continuing going to Canberra ever since. So you're looking forward to next year, the 100th? Oh, that's right, yes, 100 years. 100 that's years right. of Canberra, isn't that's it? That's right, yeah. yeah. 
they're hoping on a, for 100 balloons, but I doubt that. <laughs> well, they had 20-something last time, so right. yeah, yeah. we'll see what they get this time. That's right. Yes, so ballooning has been my life. My uh, son has had his licence for about three years, and I'm slowly fading away while he's taken over. <laughs> but it's nice to meet up with uh, ballooners. The, the thing with ballooning around Australia, we all know each other. And uh, you go to these meets, and they will come from all over Australia, and we meet up with a lot of people, and that's what I like about ballooning. No, it is, it is very much a social atmosphere. It is. Yeah. And a bit of a, I can fly further than you. <laughs> so thank you very much, Grant, for the interview. No worries, Paul. And thanks for looking after me in, in Melbourne. No thank worries, you. mate. Thanks. It's been great uh, going around, taking you around all the aircraft out here. Oh, yeah, great. terrific. Thanks, mate. <laughs> okay. Ever dreamt of flying in a warbird? Why not strap yourself in for pure excitement and let a supercharged radial engine take you up to speeds of 200 knots? Dare to push the boundaries as you experience up to 6.5 G, fully aerobatic or simply take in the spectacular scenery of Western Port Bay, French and Phillip Islands with 360 degree views. Come and join us at Adventure Wings in Turidan and take flight in our Nanchang CJ6A. Plane Crazy Down Under listeners get the 15-minute flight for only $250. That's a saving of $30. Call us on 0418 525 658 or visit our website adventurewings.com.au. Flying every weekend and other times by appointment. Adventure Wings. Leave the ordinary behind. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suho 22. Right, OK. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. TheVoicesInYourHead.com And welcome back, folks. Well, I'll tell you what, Grant, uh, that's a pretty neat way to do an interview, sitting in a car while you're driving up the road. That was uh, pretty nicely done, mate. I think we've done that before. I know we've done an Airplane Geek segment while we were driving up a freeway one time. <laughs> yeah, that was when we were coming back from, uh, where was it? That was from Tamora. Mm. We'd been to Natfly, and we we recorded one in the car as we were driving back. Oh, was it something like that? Actually, I think it was coming back from Shepparton because I think ATC Ben flew me to Natfly the last time I went. But. Oh no, two two years ago. But you may be right; it may have been Shep. I just do recall looking out and suddenly having to go, "Hey, there goes a jabberoo on a trailer." Yeah, uh, <laughs> well, that's right. I should tell our listeners that was pretty funny. One day we we're in the middle of recording, going down this freeway, and blah blah blah, and Grant goes, "Oh my god!" And I thought. Kangaroo was going to jump out in front of me or something, you know. So, <laughs> as I slammed on the brakes and put the car sideways on the freeway, no. <laughs> it, 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 it was a much just, better view of the trailer. <laughs> it was just a 
Jabiru going the other way on the back of a trailer. But anyway, I digress. Well, Grant, uh, our most enduring sound effect, Mr. Uh, Postman. Do you hear him, Grant? No, I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, it's not yet midnight and it's not middle of the day. We've tried all these other ways of dodging him, but could it be that our famous Postman is letting us down this episode? Well, he's not letting us down, mate. In fact, I've let his tyres down. In fact, we're going to show off the listener mail segment this week. We've got uh, quite a bunch of listener mail, as you can imagine. has been so long since the last episode that it's kind of banked <laughs> up a little. Uh, and in fact, we've actually got a couple of uh, voicemails that we want to play, but uh, given that this episode's running a bit long, um, if you don't mind, folks, we might just uh, put that off for another show. Show and uh, we'll try not to make it about, you know, 28 weeks till the next one. Uh, but we would like to do a few shout-outs. Grant, uh, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, definitely. Uh, first shout-out I'd like to give is uh, to the Stuck Mike Avcast. You may remember that uh, we were on their show when Len Costa was down here in Australia and uh, sat sat in our studio to record their show with the guys on Skype mm-hmm. and Steve and I in there having some fun. Well, they have not just passed their 50th ep- episode. They've blasted past their 50th episode and uh, they got 54 out with 55 due any day now so congratulations to the team at the Stuck Mike Avcast well done Yes. Thank you, studio audience. We might have the mailman, Grant, but we do have the studio audience here. That's always handy to have them queued up in my laptop. <laughs> so moving along with the shout-outs, we've got another one to do, uh, which is a big shout-out to Dave Homewood at the Wings Over New Zealand show. He's getting ready to release his 50th episode, and uh, I here on the grapevine, <clears throat> which is code for I was uh, chatting with him on Facebook the yeah, other day. Yeah, you got it straight from the source. No grapevine here. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, he's come up with a really good idea for what he's doing with it. I'm really excited to hear the uh, 50th episode. It's taking him a little while to get it all together, but it's going to be worth the wait. Fantastic. And uh, well done to Dave, he too, reaching the famous 50th episode. Absolutely. You know, Grant, uh, you know, speaking of episode numbers, we should congratulate ourselves, actually. We recently put out our 200th Australian news desk on the Airplane Geek Show. Well done to us. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a pretty good effort. Uh, you know, A, we've stuck with it long enough to produce 200 Ausdesks, and B, they've uh, kept us on for 200 Ausdesks. But yeah, anyhow. That's very good. Well, the only reason they keep us on there is, is because in 200 episodes, they've never understood a word that we've said. That could be a big part of it. I know it keeps Rob, uh, you know, scratching his head a lot. <laughs> now, you wanted to give a shout-out here, Grant. You've got it in the list to uh, Bevan Anderson and the team at Avsoft, an occasional advertiser here on the show, and uh, Avplan, Grant, uh, turning two years old. So uh, good, good on yep. those guys for that. Yeah, mate, I, I agree. Uh, uh, his software is two years old, and he's been in the US. Uh, he's got a, a version for them and uh, was over at Oshkosh just recently. So joining in the big uh, congratulations for passing uh, various milestone marks. Two years of app development, fantastic. Well done, Bevan and the crew at Avsoft and good to see Avplan continuing to improve. Yeah. Now Grant, uh, can I be a little bit self-indulgent here and talk about a bit of family stuff? Okay, go while, for it. While we're talking about uh, while we're talking about, you know, milestones and all this sort of stuff, I'd like to uh, give a big shout out to my lovely daughter Rachel who uh, since the last episode, I think the last episode, turned 18. So that means I'm very, very old now, Grant. It certainly does mate. It also means that uh, you're very much less required because hey, she even has her uh, driver's license now and so she's 18 with a driver's license and a car so i believe that's giving you back some free time isn't it yes i'm officially redundant <laughs> enjoy it mate that's called semi-retirement and gives you some free time to oh i don't know 
relax? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can't really relax because of the other milestone we passed in this house recently was uh, my lovely wife, Kathy, who recently got her yellow belt in karate. So, Grant, I have to be uh, very, very careful now. She could karate me to death if I, you know, don't do what I'm told. <laughs> One false move, don't say quite the right thing of appreciation for the next bit of cooking, and ha cha! That's right. Never mention flying. I'm not mentioning flying ever again while I'm in the kitchen. <laughs> the kitchen is a no-fly zone. <laughs> absolutely. There we go. Okay, Grant, uh, enough of uh, being self-indulgent there. Let's uh, talk about uh, some of our plans for uh, the next few episodes. Of course, uh, since we released the last show, uh, the Australian federal election has been called and uh, we were thinking uh, we would like to get into uh, doing some election quick casts like we did uh, back in 2010. If you've been following the show uh, for at least that long, you know that we uh, had a few uh, politicians on from as many sides of politics as we could uh, get on the show back then to uh, talk about uh, what aviation means to them from a uh, political point of view. So uh, we think we'd like to do that again. Yeah, I think that could uh, be pretty interesting. Aviation is appearing a little bit more this election than it was last, primarily the second Sydney airport. Now, they're not going to make that a political issue, apparently. They're not going to discuss it in detail and, and argue about it in the lead up. So that's going to be a bit of a surprise. Uh, they're saying they'll, they'll, they'll act on it very quickly. <laughs> uh, that's a bit of a scary thought. Uh, various other things we're starting to see come up here and there, but uh, a lot of the questions we've got, no sign of any discussion on them. So we're going to fire, fire them off to the politicians we know and various ones that we've had on the show before, plus a whole lot of new ones, and see what we can get happening. Yeah, so uh, folks, if you'd like to uh, send us in some suggestions for people you think uh, we could talk to, and uh, keep it nice. I mean, there's a lot of uh, passions going on uh, around politics at the best of times, and particularly over the last few years. Uh, you can always uh, do that by uh, dropping us a line to contact at plain crazydownunder.com. Uh, you know, we're going to try and get some people from the main parties on. Grant and I have had some heated discussions over whether I would allow <coughs> the Greens to come on the show. But uh, <laughs> as uh, Grant pointed out to me uh, last week, uh, well, they are major players. So, yeah, we do need to have them on if they'll come on. You know, so, folks, if you've got some people you think we could talk to as the election pertains to aviation from any party or even some questions you'd like us to ask, and once again, please keep it nice. Uh, once again, uh, contact at plaincrazydownunder.com. And I think what we will do is uh, put just a few short episodes out uh, and, uh, you know, we can hopefully cover as many sides of the political spectrum as possible. I think the last time we did that, Grant, it was quite successful and uh, was quite well well received. So uh, certainly something I think we should do again. I think it's definitely worth a go, mate. Okay. Well, I think that's everything we have for you on this episode of uh, Playing Crazy Down Underground. Another long one. Yeah, well, we're getting good at that. But uh, look, we're going to take some steps and see what we can do to uh, <clears throat> get these episodes out a little more frequently. Sorry for the big delays. Uh, we've had some pretty good reasons and we're going to take some steps to uh, try and address them and get back out to, uh, well, if we can, one a month at least. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, uh, Leon, let's be honest about it, Grant, we, uh, we've got a lot of uh, things we'd like to do with the show, but I think lately we've just taken on a bit more than uh, we can really handle. I mean, you know, we have a lot of helpers with the show, but basically it's uh, a two-man operation most of the time, and uh, as much as we'd like to get, uh, you know, a million and one projects done, this is just still a hobby business for us. So, uh, yeah, something's going to have to give. So, uh, you know, we've uh, I think we may have to, uh, you know, maybe put the radio show version into hiatus for a while, sadly, because um, it you know, it's something that we wanted to do, but uh, you know, on the other side of things, it has kind of eaten the podcast. And uh, yeah. you know, we've uh, we've been talking about this before we, re we uh, started recording tonight, folks. And uh, you know, we we really believe that the podcast is uh, far more important, and uh, we need to get back to putting out, uh, like Grant says, at least one a month, and probably back to every two or three weeks, like we used to do. Uh, and the other thing is, um, you know, for, to be honest with you, uh, spending so much time in here doing production has uh, not exactly been good for my health and fitness. So I've had to take a little bit of time away just to uh, improve that. And uh, those of you who know me know. Uh, what I've been up to and uh, you know just uh, trying to make sure that uh, you know if I'm not healthy then I can't be 
producing the podcast at all. So uh, yeah, that's uh, after four and a half years of doing this, Grant, I think we can afford to take just a little bit of a break. <laughs> just a t- small one, but uh, mate, there's lots of really great stuff happening. So we definitely want to keep the podcast going and keep the inertia happening with all the good things happening outside as well, uh, like Ozfly coming up and our trip up to uh, up to Brisbane this weekend for the uh, Careers Expo. There's all sorts of great stuff happening. We uh, we definitely love it, keeping it going, and it's just a matter of stepping back and going, okay, that was a great idea, but uh, really until such time as we can actually reduce our day jobs and make PCDU more of a, a, a day job for ourselves, yeah, we can't do everything. So thanks very much for your uh, your patience, folks, and thanks very much for your support. We really do appreciate it. We have uh, had a few emails uh, here and there recently inquiring as to where the podcast has gone, so now you know all about uh, where it's gone, and uh, we'll hope to have another episode out much sooner than we've been doing it uh, recently. So, Grant, we should sign off like we always do. Just remember when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, even if they don't come out from Australia as often as they used to, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU, and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. How do we do this again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's been a while. I just sort of go, hey, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plain Crazy Dinner. <laughs>